VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, August the 29th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and Fonce King is sitting in the producer's chair this morning. You'll be speaking with Fonce when you give us a call to get in the queue and on the air. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, let's see a little bit of roundup. There was an awful lot of sporting action on the go over the weekend. Some of our baseball teams playing at the Nationals, a bunch of provincial titles were captured, like Mount Pearl won the U18 Provincial Baseball Championship. They scored the winning run with two out, Edge Paradise 4-3. Looked like that was a pretty good game. Up along at the Nationals. So our under-16 championship team. They go up there, put a really good foot forward here. 3-1 in the round robin. Came up a bit short when they faced uh, BC in the quarterfinals. But Jada Lee was named the pitcher, the top pitcher at the 16U Nationals. No surprise. There was one game, the second game of the day when they played Quebec. Beat them 13-0. Jada was on the bump. She pitched five innings, 16 strikeouts. She also hit a three-run bomb. So good appearance, good showing for the U16 girls up along at their championship. Also, World of Soccer. Congratulations to St. John's under-15 rep team. Pretty exciting game yesterday. I actually made my way into Conception Bay South to watch this particular game. St. John's versus CBS. 1-1 after regulation, going to extra time, and then into penalty kicks. So pretty exciting and an extremely warm day. So St. John's takes them out. They're off to the Nationals. Congratulations to Ben Collingwood and his teammates. That was a beauty. And in the world of soccer, Holy Cross, seventh straight time. They're now Jubilee champs again. Oh, wow. Of beat feelings. Feelings have been really strong at the senior ranks for quite a long time. But anyway, there's a few. If you want to add a couple more to it, bring them on. All right, speaking of baseball, so just how quickly time flies. We all know it to be true. So Saturday evening, the Blue Jays had a reunion at the game prior to taking on the Angels, which they got pounded by the Angels all weekend. It's awful. I mean, they only got two guys, right? Trout and Otani. Anyway, couldn't handle them. They had a reunion of the 1992 World Series championship team. It was pretty fun, but it just goes to show you how quickly those 30 years have gone by. Bunch of the old guard were in town for the ball game. A few video messages. So, interestingly enough, so they played the Atlanta Braves for the World Series. It was the first time in history that a World Series game had been played outside of the United States. So, it goes six games. Dave Winfield, with his first ever World Series extra base hit, brings home the winning runs in the 11th inning. Jimmy Key gets the win, and of course, Mike Timlin, they had a recreation of the final out. Timlin goes and fields the bunt to throw to Leap and Joe Carter, and we win the World Series. I guess we. Toronto wins the World Series, goes on to do it again. In 1993, quick hit on tennis. So, good story I saw Zach Gowdy do. We had mentioned that the uh, the new inductees, newest inductees in Tennis Cell Hall of Fame, real extraordinary class. So, whether it be uh, Melissa Pine, who was actually the vice president of Women Tennis Association, that's the WTA, the pro women's circuit. So, Melissa Pine, Jennifer Bishop, of course. Jennifer's the chair of Tennis Canada's board of directors, member of the Davis Cup Committee, which is a really prestigious job to hold. Then you go on to Heather McLean, Dario O'Reilly, terrific players. Apparently, been dubbed the fearsome foursome by the event organizers. Congratulations. It's remarkable how many quality tennis players we have. But then they go on to say that some of their opportunities came because of the great facilities they had the chance to play on. Now they're in need of some pretty 
important repairs and upgrades before the 2025 games. But there's your most recent class at the Tennis NL Hall of Fame. And if you like tennis, the U.S. Open begins today, the fourth and final major of the season. On the women's side, Serena Williams, one of the greatest champions of all time, of course. So this is her swan song. She's done. This is her last U.S. Open. So many people will tune in today to see her take the court at Arthur Ashe Stadium, see if she can get through a round, you know, give the people what they want in Flushing Meadows, New York. A couple of more looks at the legend that is Serena Williams. And she's going to partner up with Sister Venus, too, playing doubles at the Open this go-around. Okay. Moving on. So this report is not necessarily earth-shattering, but it is quite troubling. Report done by the University of Toronto's Proof Research Program about food insecurity. You heard Brian Majoran in the VOCM newscast mention this. You know, we need to know who's experiencing food insecurity, and the numbers are really quite staggering. 17.9% of households in this province, that adds up to some 90,000 residents, are considered to be food insecure in 2021. So basically, struggling to afford food. You know, whether that be they change their diet, they go without, they rely on a food bank. But 17.9%, some 90,000 residents, food insecure. National average, about 13.1% in Quebec, 20.3% in Alberta. Then you go a little further into the report to see that it's quite clear that there's a lot of working families. Working adults and their families are food insecure. You know, whether it be simply the cost of the product at the grocery store and or the import, the impact of inflation... The numbers are unbelievable. Folks on social assistance, 68.8% were considered food insecure in 2021. This is where it gets even more troubling. Now, it's all bad enough when anybody is hungry. Of course it is. Looking at the statistics in this province regarding children, the national rate of food insecurity amongst those 18 years of age and under is 1 in 5. In this province, it's 1 in 4. 26.4% of children in the province lived in a food-insecure household in 2021. That adds up to some 22,000 children. I mean, it's truly remarkable. We know this has been a long-running problem here. We know there's a difference between access to food, whether it be in the urban centers, more rural, isolated communities, Labrador, which is zone kentle of fish. But attention to this seems to be just headline grabs as opposed to, look, there's been a 10% boost in the seniors' benefit and those on an income supplement, and that can't hurt of course it can't. But what do we do collectively to address these food insecurity issues? You've heard me talk about food a lot on this program. You know, we can all bemoan the price of diesel and gasoline and the cost of my telecom bill and my insurance premiums. But when we get right down to the brass tax, as they say, food and all the implications of not having access to food and healthy options and affordability, it leads to so many other issues inside society that... It's one of the key places to start. But those numbers really jump off the page when you read through some of the report. It's out there for those of you who would be interested in having a look. Then you look at the Single Parent Association. You know, we were involved with them again this year to block the bus. So what, what the issue is, is we try to get those of you out there who are, have the capacity and the capability to buy a book bag full of the necessities to return to school or a monetary donation. Last year, 364 students availed of the program. This year, 644 children were registered. Another wait list on top of that. They had to close the wait list. So the numbers are changing and going in the wrong direction very, very quickly when we talk about food in particular. I want to take it on today. Let's go. And as we've said many times, for so many children, one place they know they're going to have an opportunity to get something to eat, something that's healthy, 
is at school. Kids Eat Smart School Lunch Program. Both organizations do a tremendous job. And here comes classes, before you know it. Now, nobody wants to ruin the last little bit of summer. It looks like it's going to be a nice week of weather, and hopefully everyone will have a, a nice wind-up to the summer season before we get into the school and into the classroom. Classes begin on the 7th of September. You know, the issue pertaining to some schools still looking to fill the teacher vacancies? Then it gets even bigger when we talk about the number of families scrambling for daycare as they get back into the school type of routine. And it's not that long ago, it doesn't feel that long ago, that as moms and dads or caregivers, you'll know what I'm getting at here. This is the week where many families try to, you know, incrementally change some of the summer routines to get back into a more conducive school routine. And the hardest one is getting them in bed. (laughs) It just is. Still pretty bright at night, still nice and warm out, still enjoying whatever they've been up to throughout the summer months and their buddies, and whether it be organized sports or whatever they're doing to have a bit of fun and out playing. So it becomes really quite difficult to get them back into school mode. And, you know, I guess that was always the trick was you don't force it based on the you know, the commentary, we're going back to school, get in bed. We're going back to school, get in bed. As opposed to some gentle nudging <laughs> encouragement to maybe change it up just a little bit because it will be easier on all the rest of us, right? Anyway, you want to take on any of the return to school related matters? You know what to do. What do we do in school to talk about who we are? Real firm understanding of our history. You know, talk about what is, makes us unique the way we consider ourselves to be unique. And some of the stuff going on with the boat in a box, if you can find this story. So out at the, uh, the uh, wooden boat building crew, Jim Dempsey, Drone Canning, and, otherwise, and others. I mean, it's just one of these places where we know the attention to these arts is being lost. Jerome and Jim do fantastic work. We had Jim on the show not so long ago. Talk about the fact that they were going to embrace technology, expand their offering, and through computer software, they would break down what it takes to build a functional punt, and basically get a kit, a boat in a box. So no real firm understanding what price point will be at this moment in time, but there seems to be pretty significant demand for this particular project that they're working on at the Wooden Boat Museum. They do cool stuff. Jim or Jerome, if you're listening this morning, want to take us through how much further you are down the road for this eventual project, a boat in a box, we can take it on. But it is part of the culture and the heritage and People like Jerome and Jim and others, Fergus O'Byrne and whoever you want to throw into the mix regarding the preservation. Because you don't know what you've got until it's gone. Even when it comes down to preserving some of the downtown cores or the heritage buildings, generally speaking, what happens in this province becomes the 11th hour, and as the wrecking ball is set to swing, there will be a protest, a gathering, a smattering of cries that, oh my God, how can this possibly have happened? But that bit of attention to what makes it an interesting place to be. What makes it an interesting place to visit? You know, to learn more about it, maybe we'll encourage more young uh, Newfoundlanders and Labradorians to be part of the preservation voice. But uh, if you want to tackle that, you know what to do. All right, this story popped back up. Um, it's as old as 2017. And this proposal to clear cut some 11 square kilometers uh, southwest, southwest River Valley near Port, uh, Port Blanford. The residents, the locals, talk about the negative impact which is obvious, they say it have an impact negatively on their quality of life, ecotourism opportunities, wildlife, and some of the at-risk species, including the lynx, the pine marten, and the caribou. I didn't know that this story was coming back up, but now apparently it is. I remember speaking with residents in the area some five, six years ago about these proposals, and it looks like they are back on top 
of it again. And here it comes. So if you're one of those members of the Citizens Against Clear Cutting, let's take it on. In that vein, it looks like the government is reintroducing Sunday hunting. Now, for the longest while, people did indeed were allowed to trap and to hunt on Sundays throughout the season, whether it be big game or otherwise. But the fact of the matter is, even if it's not, oh my God, I'm going to get shot in the woods, there was that sense of a little bit more risky situation if you're a hiker, a walker, a berry picker, or what have you. Because on Sunday, you knew nobody would be hunting. But now it's coming back. So it's not to say that the hunters aren't mindful and are not ensuring what they see and identify clearly before they pull the trigger, but some even that even if it's just the sense of additional safety associated with no hunting on Sunday, but it's coming back in. It's going to coincide with the opening of the 2022-2023 big game bow hunting season, which opened on the 27th a couple of days ago. And the big game hunting season does not open until September 10th. Yeah. Anyway, so the Sunday hunting, I think, is going to be something that people will have some interest in and take a stance one way or the other. And in the world of hunting, there's a local seabird biologist. His name is Dr. Ian Jones. He's calling on a halt to the tur hunting season, to the tur hunt, pardon me. So the thick-billed murres and the common murres, they've been really battered by the avian flu. So he's calling for the government to put a halt to the tur hunting season. On top of that, he talks about the impact of fishing gear and just how many of the seabirds get tangled up and drown when they do become entangled in fishing gear. You know, the one thing that I think I'll throw into it, it's not part of the new story, it's about the bag limit. You know, it's fun to go out and hunt the seabirds. You know, especially if you do it safely. Now, some places like Placentia Bay, it can be really quite chaotic with how many people are out in the water taking the murs, the tours. But when you're allowed to take 40... 40 birds per day as your bag limit. I'm always a little bit surprised just how willing so many people are to take 40. No intention on eating 40. And so what becomes the annual rite of passage is just before uh, bird season opens up, you empty out the freezer, throw away the now potentially freezer burnt turrs because you took the bag, li bag limit every time you went out. But if you want to take that on, we can do it. All right, and that's part of who we are, right? And what makes us who we are. And then it's the ever-changing and rapidly changing world and embracing those opportunities at the exact same time. So while we can talk about the traditional industries of fishing and logging and the like, we do know, whether it be oil and gas, mining opportunities, things are changing. When the agreement was struck last week, or the MOU, between uh, Volkswagen, Mercedes-Benz, and this country about access to critical minerals, it's just one of those things where the reference was always to opportunities to be found in northern Ontario, northern Quebec. But Ed Moriarty here, the executive director of Mining NL, Mining Industry NL, says, we're there. We're positioned. Now, we've got some lithium discoveries, which will be one of the key minerals that the electric vehicle battery makers will be looking for. But also, we've got active mines of copper, cobalt, nickel. Apparently, there are lithium discoveries and more and more investment coming in the door. More investment means more likelihood of producing any of these critical minerals that will be in high demand. The surge of money in here is unbelievable, and the demand, the forecast on demand, and nothing is pure, nothing is as clean as we need it or want it to be. Everything has an impact on the environment. We know it, but if you want to take it on, we can do. This is from Mr. Moriarty. The world is expected to see a quadrupling of production between energy transition minerals. Today's production is about 6 million tons, and that's forecasted to go up to 28 million tons over the next 8 to 10 years, and we are relatively unexplored, says Mr. Moriarty, so the opportunities 
may indeed be there. How are we doing on the phone to get us going on this Monday, Fonts? Let's get it going. All right, stick with technology for a second. So remember the nuisance that it was when the MyGovNL app crashed. And it happened a couple of different occasions where your driver's license, MCP, plan renewals, all that kind of stuff knocked offline. So the minister responsible, uh, digital government minister, Sarah Studley, she did say it was unacceptable, but it looks like we're sticking with the vendor for now. It wasn't a result of a cyber attack. It's just the pretty fundamentals of the system got overloaded and bogged down. This is a quote from the minister. If, a, if over a certain number of people attempted to log in at one time, it would take the whole thing down. Okay. So she did say, not only on top of it was unacceptable, they'd keep their eye open for a different vendor. So they've apparently been able to negotiate some financial remedies, they're calling it, some $60,000 in credits. I don't know if that goes all the way to cover the frustration and the loss, but they're working on it. And then just think about it, you know, the, the cyber attacks. And we really don't know exactly where we are in the opportunity to further protect and to rebuild the Meditech system. And just how many thousands upon thousands of residents had their information exposed. You know, whether or not it's important to know if there was a ransomware and a demand of ransom, and if and when we paid it, even though the experts generally say don't pay it because you never know if you're going to get the information back or the key to relock the system. But it's just remarkable how... You know, some people still want to go in, be able to look someone in the eye. Counter service. You know, paper. But it's changing so quickly. And some people, maybe not changing as quickly as governments possibly would like you to do. Even though it seems a little bit more seamless, it sounds and feels a little bit more accessible. No, don't need to hop in the rig and go to one counter or another. But it does leave some people behind. And when it goes wrong, it goes horribly wrong. So I know that's a big, broad one. You want to take it on? We can do it. And we haven't forgotten about the green hydrogen proposals, and there's a lot to discuss there. We haven't forgotten about the fact that Central Health is reviewing some 3,000 patients and their reading of their mammography results. You know, again, based on a technology issue. You know, need five megapixels in all our reviewing stations, but apparently some three of them only working with the three megapixels. Apparently, major problem, not up to the standards I put forward by the... National Umbrella Organizations. All right, we are on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openline at vocm.com. Okay, I know I've played this one in the past. Well, here it comes again. In 1969, Bob Seger released his debut album, right? Ramblin' Gamblin' Man. So I don't know how you classify it, if it's folk or blues rock or heavy rock or rock and roll or whatever it is, but it's fantastic. Also that year, in 1969, Bob Seger filed for a divorce from his wife of 10 months. Maybe, just maybe, because he was a rambling, gambling man. When we come back, we'll speak with you. Don't go away.
weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number two. John, you're on the air. Hello, is this me, John Reed? That would be you, sir. Well, good morning, Patty. Look, I have been trying to get to uh, to listen to the Human Rights Commission thing with the Churchills. I would be there myself, except that I'm sick and my wife is sicker. I tried to join the uh, the, the live stream. It's called on on V I M E O, and it it does. I don't have it. Does it come up? Do, do you or anybody else know if I have to join VIMEO in order to get this? Yeah, you actually had to request uh, access, if I remember correctly. Uh, now, I know that Todd Churchill spoke I, with I Jerry did. Lynn. Ma- Pardon? Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I did do the request, and I got everything from, from the Human Rights Commission. And and that's, and that's I put the stuff in, the, the, the URL in from the Human Rights Commission, and it comes up. But there's, it's a blank screen. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. I'm no, that's okay, John. Uh, it's, uh, it looks like it's going to be easy enough. So if you go to our website at VOCM.com, click on yeah. the story on the beginning of this human rights hearing. There, It says it's it, it, italicized in red. If you just click it, you go right to it. I just clicked it, and I'm looking right at it. Okay. Um, I'm on your VOCM local news right now. Yep. Human rights there's a picture of Carter there. Yeah, it says Human Rights Commission begins hearings in d- discrimination case against English school district. Proceedings will be, where it says proceedings will be live streamed. Click it. I'm clicking. I don't click it. <coughs> oh, my. It brings me right to vimeo.com slash event and a lot of bunch of numbers, but I'm looking right at it just by having clicked it. You got it? I, I, I have a blank screen again. Yeah, I'm not sure what to say, because for me, it comes uh, straight up. I'm looking right at the opening remarks uh, right now and the ASL interpreter who's in a split-screen box, so I'm maybe, seeing it. Maybe I should try Google Chrome instead of Safari. Yeah, yeah. try that. Absolutely. Try uh, the, what do they call those things? Whatever. Yeah, I, yeah, I understand. Try that. Go through, use Chrome, and I because that's what I have on my screen here this morning, and I had no issues getting to it right away. Okay. All right. I'll give it a shot. Thank you. Okay, you're welcome, Sorry, to, sorry to bug your show. You're not bugging me. Take care. All right. Okay, bye-bye. Right. And this is an important one. This is, of course, uh, the Churchill family, Churchill family fighting for Carter. You know, there was a pilot uh, classroom for... Deaf, hard of hearing students. It was at East Point Elementary last year, and it was a roaring success, as far as I can tell. Actually, I think two years ago. Yeah, well, I'm not sure. Anyway, it seemed to do really, really well and well received. We do know that there's got to be when we talk about inclusivity in the provinces' classrooms. It cannot just simply be a word. It cannot be the headline from a government news release. It's actually got to work. So we've seen the shortcomings. We've talked about it on this program a lot, and happy to do so again because. The quality and caliber and access to equal and equitable opportunities inside K-12, to or even pre-K-12, to has got to be available and automatic. And so many children are indeed being left behind. You know, the Churchill commentary is really quite stark. You know, for Carter and others, if you don't have ongoing tutelage coming from someone who speaks your language, and in this case, American Sign Language, 
if it's just sporadic, then basically children are set in, in the classroom with nothing. You know, you can have a caring, loving teacher and student assistants or whatever, but unless everybody is fluent in American Sign Language, then they are sitting there sometimes in their own mind, in their own quiet. So that's not necessarily education the way we think about it out loud, is it? Let's go to line number three. Natasha, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi. I want to talk about the lady that's in police custody for just stabbing down Atlantic Place. Okay. Well, she's in police custody right now, and a lot of people are unaware that she has severe mental issues. Uh, she was abused as a child. And recently, she just got a relationship with a dangerous man. Now, this man that she was in a relationship with, he tried to kill her. And she was lucky to escape. When she did this incident down Atlantic Place, she was drunk and very depressed. Now, there's no excuse for what she did. She should do time, yes. But they're not giving her the help that she needs in custody. They're refusing her the right to see a doctor. They're refusing to give her the right to see a psychiatrist. And she really needs help. So if I remember the story correctly, was she not assessed as to whether or not she was fit to stand trial right away? Uh, yes, but the assessment wasn't a complete assessment. No, and it all happened very quickly. Uh, the, the story, like many, look, I, I think you're right to say that there is no excuse for the criminal act that she's alleged to have uh, taken in Atlantic Place, and it was pretty serious. But here's where it becomes problematic for me right away, is just how quickly people are willing to pile on and to say all kinds of stuff about the way someone looks and or some just tongue-in-cheek references to mental health when, in fact, it's not funny. None of that's funny. It's all real. So her backstory of being abused or in a, an abusive relationship, I, don't, I bet you most people chiming in, they had no earthly idea. So until we know more about it and we get some, you know, real talking points, discussions based on facts and who people are, where they come from, what their issues may indeed be, I think it would probably take down some of the temperature of folks who are so willing and so quick to make reference to the picture with her hands up in the air in the courtroom and how people might look at the way she looks and presents herself and whether or not she has mental issues. Sometimes there's so much more to these stories that the immediate echo chamber of Twitter will say, where people just make their judgments and their declarations without any consideration beyond what they just saw, what they heard, what other people wrote. I didn't bring it up on the show because I thought it was probably a much more complicated story than I knew at the time. And I'm not surprised to hear that she's dealing with some demons, which is part of the conversation. And I think you're right to say it doesn't excuse anything, but we have to factor it all in before everyone's so quick to pounce. And Natasha, are you related to her by chance? And you don't have to answer my questions. Uh, yeah, she's my mom. She's your mom. Have you had an opportunity to see her? Uh, I see her in the courtroom, and she was asking for help, but it seemed like nobody would listen. What are you able to do, do you think, on your mom's behalf, to get her the opportunity to see a doctor, a medical doctor, uh, or to see a psychiatrist, whatever you think she needs? What are you able to do from the outside? I think just try to get it out there and let people be aware that she needs mental help. It's one of the things inside the criminal justice system that we know is lacking. There are so many people behind bars, whether it be at the uh, women's facility in Clarenville or the other men's prisons around the province, where 
you'll be told by guards and for people who are down at the courthouse all the time, uh, lawyers and otherwise, that they'll take a guess that some 80% of those who are on remand or incarcerated after being uh, found guilty and sentenced are dealing with addictions or mental health-related matter. That's a big number. It's a number where if that's the case, then do we have resources in place to help or to deal with, to assist, to support 80% of the inmates in the province? The short answer is no, we don't. And that's, not go- and that's a problem. Yes. So for understanding all of these things, when your mother, prior to this alleged act, what kind of supports did your mother have in the community? Was she seeing somebody? Did she had ac- have access to long-term mental health resources? Describe that for us. Uh, she was trying to seek help, but she was put on a wait list. Okay. Not easy. How are you doing, Natasha? How are you holding up? Uh, well, it's a bit stressful, to be honest. I would imagine it is. And so for the folks who were really quick to be unkind and over-the-top and judgmental, uh, what do you say to folks? Because this won't be the last time we have these types of stories. It just won't be. These will repeatedly pop up in the news. But one person or another, Atlantic Place or anywhere else, has committed or has been alleged to have committed a crime, and there's so much behind everybody's backstory, and it's not in an effort to excuse. It's in an effort to understand. What would you say? I think people should consider what others might be going through before they're too quick to judge. Natasha, I wish you well. I'm glad you made time for the program this morning, and uh, take good care of yourself. Stay in touch. Okay. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome, Natasha. Bye-bye. Bye. And again, I mean, just to be abundantly clear, none of these are offered. Those comments are not offered as a free pass. When crimes are committed, there is a process, and there may indeed, upon being found guilty by either a jury or a judge, there will be punishment discipline, a price to pay. And what that looks like, based on the type of crime, is a case-by-case basis. So if I or anyone else makes reference to the fact that someone may be struggling mentally, it is by no means to say, how dare anyone question what that person did because they might be mentally unwell. No, but it's just part of the story. You know, and again, you know, harken back to the attack of the woman in Bowering Park. And then the story was Absolutely, the focus needed to be on the victim, in this case, this lady. And then it was whether or not bystanders were willing or wanting to do anything about it. And then there were stories regarding the attacker, the alleged attacker, and their, the fact that they're on the spectrum and what that means. Again, just adding facts to the story, adding different layers to these issues doesn't mean that, okay, well, you're on the spectrum or you've been diagnosed with a mental health-related matter, and so consequently we can't talk about it, we won't talk about it, and you get a free pass. That's not the case. It's certainly not the case when I talk about it. So anyway, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, tons of time to get the week off to a flying start. That means you have to pick up the phone, get in the queue, and on the air. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go. Top of the board, line number one. Good morning, Edna. You're on the air. Hi. I'm sorry to be completely off your topic today, but I lost my wedding and engagement rings uh, by the Cornerbrook Plaza um, last Wednesday. And uh, through an extensive search, I didn't find them. I just picked them up from getting cleaned. 
And uh, I'm just wondering if somebody has picked them up, a uh, reward is offered. They're white gold, uh, the engagement and wedding uh, brand, soldered, band soldered together. It's popular for women in particular to solder together their engagement and wedding ring. So it's white gold lost by the Cornbrook Plaza last Wednesday. How long have yeah. you been married, Edna? 42 years. Oh, my. So this is crushing to lose these yeah, two I, rings. I Okay. I did a police report, and uh, some very nice people. It was about 10 minutes before I realized I just had it cleaned, picked it up, had it in my lap while I put on sanitizer, and then I stood up and got out of the vehicle, and it went on the ground. And about 10 minutes in, I realized, oh, my goodness, my rings are gone. Some very nice people were helping me look for them, and, yeah, within the 10 minutes, I guess somebody picked them up, and um, I would love to have them back. <laughs> Of course you would. Have you checked around Cornerbrook and maybe some surrounding communities for some of the notable places where someone would try to sell those those rings? Um, I asked the police if there was any pawn shops, and they they said no, actually. So I've contacted jewelers in case somebody would come in. Mm-hmm. They got somebody to put it on Facebook. Uh, I just somebody mentioned to me I should put it on the radio. So trying that. Well, and I'm happy to try to help here. So once again, it's white gold. It's an engagement ring that's been soldered against the wedding ring. Uh, lost Cornerbrook Plaza last Wednesday. Edna and her husband have been married for 42 years, so you know full well that this has four decades plus of memories and sentiment. So if you found them, and even if you thought you might be able to unload them for a few dollars, the fact of the matter is repurposed jewelry like this will get you nothing, virtually nothing. So it means everything to Edna and so little to you if you picked it up and found it. Maybe you're just waiting to hear if someone had lost it, and if so, terrific. But now, if you got it, we'd love for you to return it to Edna. Edna, you want to give out your number? You want fonts to keep it? What do you want to do? I actually already gave it to the station okay. there before they put me on. Okay. Terrific. So fingers crossed. Good luck. Thank you so much. And reward offered. Thank yeah, you. reward offered. That should pique their interest. I bet you, you know, put it this way. I bet you the reward is more than what you're going to get if you manage to hawk it or to sell it to somebody else. So Probably just is. consider that, and we can do this quietly and return the rings and get your reward, and off we go. Thank you so much. Thanks, Edna. All the best. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Let's keep going. Uh, we're 21. We take care of Fonce. Fonce is on the phone. I'll just pick one myself. Line two it is. Oral, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Okay, you? Uh, I'm not too bad. I was trying to get a hold of you there Friday. My birthday was Saturday. I turned 60. Uh, the reason why I called you, Patty, I'm on low income, see? And I'm uh, trying to ask it this one and that one. They gave me $75 towards my glasses and 125 And then when I was sitting down, they came over and said, now you owe us 500 see? So I don't like asking anybody for help, but if there's anybody in the world that can help me. Even if I you get a repurposed pair of spectacles, so you're on no. income support. Are you oral? Yeah, no, I, I have a very special uh, glasses, my buddy. They're like okay. and Very well. Right. So for folks, just if anyone's uh, interested in it, the way it works is if you are on a recipient of income support, you can get, I think it's $55 to get your eyes examined. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then when you go ahead to get fit for eyeglasses, yeah. Uh, single vision, I think it's 125 bucks. Bifocals, maybe 165 or 175 dollars or something of the yeah. like. Then uh, there's only so many times you can go back to the well for that. For exams, so there's difference if you're a child versus an adult, and same thing yeah. with eyeglasses. So there's a fella here who needs some additional support to cover off the rest of the eyeglasses. If anyone yeah. contacts us or tries to, uh, wants to help, or we'll give you a shout. How's that? God love you. I appreciate you. Okay. Good luck, buddy. Thank you, buddy. All the best, Oral. Okay. Okay. Bye bye. 
Uh, let's keep going. Line number three. Jim, you're on the air. Uh, yes, just a second. I'll switch off the speaker. Okay. You still there? I'm still there. Yeah, okay, good. No, I heard this rumor last night, and uh, I, now that I'm thinking about it, I think I heard something on Open about it before, too, but uh, I think it's the interpretation or what's going on anyway. This guy claims he saw on the Internet. It's probably one of those, you know, uh, conspiracy sites. I don't know. Could if be. Not. I, I don't look at it. But what he heard was that the Premier was working two jobs, being a Premier and still being a doctor and getting paid for both. But I don't think that's true, is it? It is. So here, yeah, here's under what circumstances? Well, that's that's why I guess what we'll try to get into here. There's an amount of work that Andrew Fury has to do, as required by the College of Physicians and Surgeons, to keep his credentials as a doctor. I think the number is in a three-year period he has to work 120 days. And of course, Andrew Fury is a surgeon. Initially, he I mean, he was quite clear that he was going to keep his credentials, and I think most of us would. And plus, when he's done with politics, hopefully we. Seeing as how we need doctors, he'll be able to get right back into the operating theater. So the, the answer to your question, a short one, is yes. He only yeah, gets no. paid for when he works, though. He's not getting a salary as a doctor okay, as no. opposed yeah. to so much per surgery. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. Uh, 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 of course, this guy said, uh, oh, well, you know, uh, uh, yeah, sure, he's not going back to be a doctor when he gets out of the premiership. He's, he's going right to Ottawa like his father. Well, his father, father, of course, is an appointed senator. He's the Speaker yes, yes. of the Senate. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. George Fury. So, yeah, I know that. So, so I never thought of that at the time, but he brought it up, right? So, you know, there's a lot of, uh, I think people confuse uh, speculation and suspicion with facts, you know what I mean? And, uh, uh, all too common. But, like, what happens in the future regarding a, a Senate appointment or he runs federally or so? I don't I have no earthly idea. Uh, he's long contended that he's going to continue keeping his credentials as a doctor, return to be a practicing medical doctor after his life in politics. At this point, I don't know why he wouldn't. I mean, the, imagine all the time and effort that you put in to become a doctor to walk away from it. Even for a Senate appointment, sounds a little bit odd to me. But anyway, he is indeed getting paid up and around six to $800 per surgery when he performs one. And the requirements are clear from the college. 120 yeah. days inside of three years to keep your credentials. That's that's the facts. Right now, and I said I said to this guy, I said, uh, well, sure, you know, uh, he's uh, he's got to uh, he's got to keep up his practice and that. You know, like I said, right? I, I sort of guessed that. You know, he's got to keep up. Uh, you know, maybe I said maybe he got special permission to do it because of the uh, backlog in the uh, in that type of surgery. Uh, is, could that be uh, part of it too? I don't, I don't know. know. And if, if there was any special accommodations made, I honestly don't know. I know that he just had to do X amount to right. keep his license alive. Uh, now, if I remember correctly, when the news story came out, is that the, at the beginning, the department would not release the details, the records, how many surgeries, how much he got paid, how much he billed. Right, then right. he did. And then the assertion, I think coming from David Brazel, was that maybe he should consider making uh, that money, donating it to someone. Yes, but, I heard that. Yeah, too. okay, that was part of it. Yeah, that's right. I remember hearing that now, when you reminded me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so, um, and, but he's not donating it, we'll say. I have no earthly idea on that either. I mean, I'm, we're happy to ask him, but I do know he's performed surgeries and gets paid for it. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. But that's a, that's a far cry, though, from uh, working to sort of full-time jobs and getting paid full benefits, you know, whatever. You know? Agreed. They're, they're probably, I guess the implication is, how can he, uh, how can he multitask and give full uh, credit to both jobs, you know? Well, I don't think he's attempting to give full credit to his role uh, as a surgeon because the numbers, uh, again, I, if I had to know what we're talking about, it happened in front of me, but 
the, there was a portion of the, I think it was the fourth quarter last year, he did 16 surgeries in the entire quarter. So yeah. for active surgeons, they can do 16 a week. So uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, see, yeah, that's the basis. Yeah, I guess I guess it, it depends on the people who are convinced one way or the other. They usually uh, uh, stretch it and you know what I'm saying and make up their own mind, sort of thing. You yeah, know? there's a difference. Like for me, if I'm talking about uh, a premier with business interest that he has to check, and there's lots of questions about all the businesses that uh, Andrew Fury's been involved in and the members of boards of directors that he's been involved in and some of his friends and what boards and what businesses they're with, and they're all fair questions. We need to know who we're talking about and what the backstory is. But there's a difference, I think, if I'm running my construction company and yeah. trying to be a member versus a doctor. Like, I don't care what stripe yeah. any doctor would be who's, who's working as an elected member of the House Assembly. I prefer they kept their license alive for when they're done with politics. Because if we all need and want them, we're scrambling and yelling for doctors. Yeah. It'd be a shame to see doctors go unaccredited because they didn't keep their license active. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is now, uh, regardless of the... Uh, our premier, our provincial premier, uh, the thing with the uh, uh, the development on the southwest coast, you know, the windmills and all that kind of stuff, electricity, hydrogen, uh, uh, they, again, being uh, <laughs> anti-Trudeau, this guy's as well, you know, they're only down here because, uh, uh, you know, the German government has pushed them and also, uh, also you know, uh, they got... Uh, the, the politicians got connections with all those business people, and, uh, of course, you can't prove that, you know, but uh, I don't know. Well, well, I mean, some of the biggest companies, some of the biggest players were in Stephenville. Uh, Thyssen Krupp and Siemens were That's here right. and Volkswagen yeah. and Mercedes-Benz. Do I think all the local politicians have those kind of contacts in the business world? I, I don't know. I, for most of them, I would say I doubt it. Uh, and whether or not the pressure is coming from John Risley or... Justin Trudeau or Olaf Schultz or Andrew Fury or yeah. Brendan Paddock, I don't know. But if there's not any sort of big load of provincial or federal monies behind these things, yeah. I'm less concerned about that. That's now, I mean, yeah. if it becomes a big deal, like it's me and you and we're footing the bill and we're assuming a bunch of the risk, then we all have a problem with it. Yeah, I see so what you mean. that's why there's still so many unanswered questions which I think leads people down these rabbit holes where they say, well, there must be something nefarious going on because I don't know this relationship, I don't know that relationship. They might be right, but some of this is guesswork simply because they're sick of looking at Fury or Trudeau or anybody else, the Premier yeah, or the also, Prime Minister. Also, uh, but I guess to the, uh, this, uh, this uh, whole project, it seems like it was, again, another backwards thing, almost like Muskrat Fathers, but making people suspicious. Uh, they've signed, uh, was that just a letter of intent or have they actually signed the deal to begin uh, now in order to, to plans to begin, uh, in other words, before the environmental thing. Uh, they say they're doing it backwards. They should do the environmental thing first, but uh, I don't know. One one commentator was saying, one lawyer was saying that uh, if they don't get the environmental thing early and right, uh, the uh, protesters, uh, environmental protests, could tie them up in the courts for 15 years instead of five, you know? Yeah, possibly. That's not an unfair question to ask whoever's asking it, because it was just a couple of weeks prior the department sent the World Energy GH2 back to the drawing board, looking for more details, more environmental assessment, and things that had to be considered. 
So that's fair because now they've got it's not a deal; it's a joint intent, a joint declaration of intent, or a memorandum of understanding. That's, that's what I'm getting at. It's not it's not just signed, sealed, and delivered. Now it's just a, a sort of a proposal, is it, or whatever? Well, I think it's beyond proposal, but MOUs don't always manifest themselves into actual deals. But it really feels like what all these people, all these heavy hitters, the yeah. prime minister, the premier, and others are in attendance for that signing. It really feels. Like that project's getting a green light, which yeah, can yeah. indeed be very much feel like the cart in front of the horse. I get it. I understand that concern. And and they did it so quickly, so it makes people suspicious. You know, it just uh, was on the news uh, a week or so before, and then bang, oh, it was done, and, uh, you know. All true. You know, so what's going on there? You know, it seems like they're putting the cart before the horse there. I don't know, you know. Well, it, it certainly can't get that semblance. Look, there's one other project that they're working on actively in this country. It's called Beldoon, the Port of Beldoon in New Brunswick. Right. They've signed on a deal with, with a, a company in the United States, out of New York, as a matter of fact. Okay. This relationship between Germany and Canada kind of came out of nowhere. I know there was tiptoeing around and trying to help Germany off their importation of Russian right, petrochemical right, right. products, what have you. Yes, yes. But there's still big questions about the cost and, and sustainability of hydrogen, whether it be here or Nova Scotia or wherever. So I don't think people are wrong to be asking these questions because they're huge questions. That's right, yeah. 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 Okay, well, uh, that's it. And uh, what they were saying, what this guy was saying now, on, uh, not the garbage doctor last night, but uh, I'm sure you've heard comments on the radio or whatever, oh, sure. you too, that, uh, uh, you know, they can, uh, uh, um, they can they can take the, first the wind produces the hydrogen uh, through the water, separates the water, you know, from the hydrogen and separates uh, oxygen and... Uh, and yeah, all that comes out is brown gases, the yeah. Water, the water... Uh, I don't know if it boils off or disappears or whatever, and then uh, you get your hydrogen. But the hydrogen is unstable. It's explosive and unstable, so they have to combine it with nitrogen to make ammonia. Ammonia is more stable, and that's the way they ship it to Germany. And then when they get it to Germany, supposedly what they do, they can take the separate them again, take the nitrogen, use that for fertilizer, take the hydrogen, and use that for, for producing power or engines. You know. Yeah, the ammonia used for cooling so that it can be shipped safely and then they have to reheat it on the other end. There's an interesting story out there today. It's someone looking at the Bell Dune project in particular, talking yeah. about what the cost is. You know, 10 electrical units generated here, shipped over, results in three usable electri electric units. And there's different definitions inside the news story, but it's a good one. So okay. it's costly. We know that green hydrogen is an expensive process. We know that there's got to be, you know, the, at least 164 wind turbines. We know that's also only a third of the potential project. So when people have questions, I think we should ask them loudly and demand answers as soon as possible because it feels like the deal is done even though we've just signed MOUs or joint it's intents of declarations, whatever the, the new fancy term. But anyway, Jim, appreciate the time this morning. Yeah, okay, there you go. All the best. Thanks. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, look... Um, it might be great. It might be worrisome. And yes, there are, look, it depends on where you are in the province, right? If you're living in the Port of Port region, it's a huge issue regarding environmental sensitivities, animals, flora, fauna, and yes, the eyesore that some people will call the wind turbines. For most others, I would think, it's whether or not we are going to go too far, too quick, sell off too much, assume too much risk. Either sell versus lease of the crown land. Whether it be that the project will be on our electric grid prior to be full up and running, and maybe we're selling them power at whatever rate, which we can't find out yet. Then there is whether or not there's going to be there's going to be federal money. There's already set aside monies for these types of projects, 
Will there be any additional provincial monies? The minister responsible, Minister Parsons, at this point says no. But we don't know enough to know exactly what's going to happen, which is why we're happy to ask those questions. Let's take a break. When we come back after the news, coming up on the 1st of September, the tax on sugary drinks, 20 cents a liter. What exactly does it mean? I don't know. How about you? Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Say good morning to the independent member from Mount Pearl Southlands. That's Paul Lane. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Not too bad, I suppose. How about you? Oh, I'm best kind boy. Beautiful day. It is. Um, yeah, it is indeed. Patty, uh, I, I just wanted to uh, call in just briefly about the uh, sugar tax um, because I, I did have a couple of people reach out to me uh, about it. Um, first of all, uh, I just want to say that. Um, I was a little uh, disappointed, perhaps not overly surprised, and I did hear my colleague Eddie Joyce call about this a while ago, um, and that was the fact that at the time when the sugar tax uh, was debated in the House of Assembly and so on, and, and there was quite a debate back and forth, and I guess one of the things that did get somewhat settled on um, was that was that uh, Minister Cody... Minister, Minister, Minister Cody had uh, had basically committed to the fact uh, to the House that um, that that uh, you know when the um, when the sugar tax money uh, was collected, that that money, every cent of it, uh, would go into programs around healthy eating, healthy living, and so on, and that it wouldn't just be existing programs that they could say, oh, we're putting the money into, for example. Um, you know, school lunch when you're already doing that anyway. Unfortunately, it seems that uh, that commitment hasn't been kept. And for the most part, it seems like any money uh, associated to healthy living and so on is just programs that already existed. And also there seems to be a lot more money being projected that's going to be collected that I would assume is just going into general revenues. And we wanted to see the money go into new initiatives, whether it be, uh, you know, education, whether it be into, uh, you know, perhaps uh, support with healthy fruits and vegetables to the to the food banks. Perhaps there could be, you know, some things to do, uh, perhaps if there's gaps that exist with the Canadian Tire Jumpstart program, as, as an example, to be able to enhance those programs so that children from disadvantaged homes could participate in sports and so on to uh, eliminate those barriers. Unfortunately, those things doesn't seem like they're going to happen. And in that sense, it does become what many people have viewed as, as a tax grab. Yeah, so the original forecast was a little bit of the government saying the quiet part out loud. You know, they think it will encourage and to cause people to change their behavior and their purchasing power. But if they say it might bring in $9 million, now the number we won't know until we have a full year under our belt as to how much money came in. The issue with... You know, new programs versus funding for existing programs is pretty much a political pledge not met as opposed to whether or not this is actually going to work, whether or not it's an actual tax grab. Because if they don't earmark all that money 
pro actual programs that deal with healthy lifestyle, healthy eating, whether it be dealing with food insecurity issues or otherwise, then it will be 100% nothing but a tax grab. If it's used for existing programs and to further supplement new programs and access issues regarding food and healthy food, then I'm not so sure mo many people care if it goes towards what we hope it goes towards, but if it doesn't, it's a problem. It's a problem that government would have created for themselves. Hundred percent, and that was our uh, fear and contention at the time uh, when this was going through the house. But uh, but we, uh, and I think Eddie might have mentioned here, like uh, I, I believe he went over to the government house leader, and we had a little discussion outside the house of how we could come to some kind of consensus on this. This is what they agreed to, and the minister stood up and said that that would happen. But uh, it seems like that's a uh, broken promise, and that's uh, very unfortunate. The other part I wanted to talk about with the sugar tax, although I've had <clears throat> now a couple of businesses in my area who have uh, contacted me who are very confused over implementation and very frustrated. Apparently, there's a lot of paperwork that has to be done every month in terms of the calculation of this sugar tax and how it's submitted and so on. And it may be fairly straightforward, like if you're selling like a can of Pepsi, for example, that's fairly straightforward, but I think where it gets really tangly is, for example, when you have the fountain drink, because the fountain drink is based on um, how much uh, it comes. It comes down to when you have fountain drink, you have actually have like the full concentrate in a tank, and then that gets mixed with water. So then, depending on the size of the cup and the strength of the concentrate you're using, and all this fun stuff, that there's all kinds of different calculations. So if you're given small drinks versus large drinks, and if you're if you have free refills, for example, that was a question. So if I have like a lot of restaurants, you pay for your Pepsi, but then you have a free refill. So now am I going to charge tax, just the tax on free refills? Um, and those are some of the issues along with all the paperwork. So I don't know if government has a plan. I don't know if, if when you were talking to the minister, if anyone mentioned it to you, I can't seem to get any answers as to. You know, I think they should have some sort of a contact person or a number or a website or something there where if I'm a business owner who has to implement this stuff that I can call or contact somebody and get an answer, uh, you know, in, in a relatively short period of time, not send an email that doesn't get answered until three weeks later, if at all. And if that's not set up, I would certainly ask government to do so. Yeah, I mean, people... Uh there was one example offered by a small retailer says, well, what happens if I have uh, a product that is a, should have the tax applied to it and it's in a gift basket? How do I deal with that and break it down? Because for me, that's a one cost issue. Maybe I bought yeah. them from someone to resell them. I'm the mm -hmm. middleman that makes a, an additional profit. I don't know the answers, but here's where it becomes a little bit more manageable is there's concerns about in the manufacturing sector whether or not it costs jobs. Government says no, but how do they know? Inside the world of the retail outlet, if it was up to me, there would be ample time between when this was first brought down in the budget and we knew it was coming, is that every single question, now, okay, every question out there from the retailer, manufacturer, individual, on the government's own website, you needn't have a point person getting paid extra monies for this, but how about this? This is so common, is to have an FAQ, 
the frequently yeah. asked questions collect them yeah. answer them one time all you have to do is click on that particular link inside the department of health community services and boom or inside the department of finance or wherever you'd like to find a home for it, or on multiple agencies so that people can get some pretty fundamental answers because that's an easy way out for government too it's easy for them it's manageable for the user and answers can come as opposed to confusion because the confusion only has a couple of days to resolve itself. It's September 1st. Exactly, and that's the issue. That Here we are at the 11th hour now, and we're still getting these questions. And, and an FAQ would absolutely be a perfect way to go, uh, as long as, of course, it is supplemented with some number of, of a kind. I'm not saying that the person would be like totally dedicated to it, but there should be, in addition to that, if there's a question that's not contemplated on Oops, the connection's gone awry. Yeah, we're kind of losing you here now, Paul. Uh, but, and the call just dropped. That's not me. That was his connection. So, look, I mean, here it comes. It's got lots of support from different groups like Diabetes Canada and the College of Pediatricians because if it does indeed see a reduction in the amount of sugar consumed, then it will have achieved its desired outcome. Problem is, in some jurisdictions, it's worked somewhat. Where it's had an appreciable impact is if a tax is applied at the site of manufacturing. So if the manufacturer reduces sugar content on their own accord, consequently, the consumer can only buy something with a reduced amount of sugar. Then you add in exemptions for diet drinks and what have you. And, I mean, I don't know. We've certainly got a problem with chronic illness. And surely some of these drinks contribute to it but not so sure all the questions have been answered. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're turning our attention to the sky. Just about three minutes after 10 here island time, the two-hour launch window happened for the first uh, phase of the Artemis project, or the Artemis mission, Artemis 1. There's a rocket headed for space. Randy Atwood, our good buddy with his eyes set firmly on space, is going to tell us what's going on with Artemis when we come back from this. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, it's been since December of 1972 since anyone was on the moon. Now, the Artemis mission is set to re- restore or to rebuild or reintroduce humans to space and maybe to walk on the moon again. So the window for launch, which is a two-hour window, just opened up this morning a little while ago. There'll be all kinds of people around Florida's space coast looking for what they might see with this historic mission. Join us online, number one, a space historian, friend of the show, Randy Atwood. Good morning, Randy. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good to talk to you again. Great to have you on the show. So I do indeed enjoy these stories. I'm quite curious about it. It is remarkable with all the things we've seen and the rovers that have been launched and we're on Mars, and there's been no one on the moon since December of 1972. What does the Artemis mission do to address that particular issue or question? Well, the Artemis rocket, uh, the program was started about 12 years ago, and it uh, is the effort to put people back on the moon. To do that, you need a very, very big rocket similar to the moon rocket of the of the 60s and what they decided to do is take all of the uh, space shuttle technology the solid rockets the liquid rockets the big tank and turn it into a big rocket and they called it artemis and artemis is actually the twin uh, sister of apollo in greek uh, mythology so that's where they got the word artemis from and uh, the idea is uh, today uh, to launch this big rocket for the first time uncrewed 
no one on board, but send it out to the moon, orbit the moon for a couple of weeks and come back. That That's the plan. Now, the, the as you mentioned, the window opened a few minutes ago. Uh, they've been having problems all morning, and uh, just before we came on air, they canceled the launch attempt for the day, primarily because of a problem with one of the four liquid uh, engines. These liquid engines, they burn liquid hydrogen, which is at 250 degrees below zero Celsius. Very, very cold, and they have to go through a process to chill down the engines to make them very, very cold before they start using them. And one of the engines just wasn't behaving this morning, and they troubleshooted it for several hours, but uh, uh, no go. So uh, they're going to try again. Next opportunity is, is Friday, but uh, it, it, it's, it's not unheard of. The first shuttle mission was scrubbed on the first day. They went two days later. It, it's, it's, they don't really test everything. Or they can't test all the little bits and pieces until they put everything together and, and try to launch, and one of these things bit them this morning. Yeah, no crew. There will be three Elaine Bennis mannequins and a plush Snoopy that will be on this rocket whenever they get an opportunity to launch. So they say they had some trouble. Like on Saturday, the lightning tower surrounding the rocket were struck several times. What level of concern does that present? Well, Florida, if anyone's down, been down in Florida in August, and I saw a shuttle launch in, Flor- in Florida in August once, and I've never seen a lightning show like, uh, like I did. Um, that's why they set up these big towers around the pad to attract lightning. Uh, so uh, they, they did their job, uh, and uh, it's just part of uh, launching down in, in Florida. Uh, now, whenever the launch does happen, there's an awful lot of stuff that happens in the first 10 minutes, all crucial steps towards successful flight. Describe what happens in the first 10, Randy. Well, anytime you're you're firing these engines and burning all this fuel, it's it's really a controlled explosion, and uh, and that's what rocket launches are. So the the idea is that the uh, the the where the people will be, the astronauts will be. It's called the Orion. Um, uh, spacecraft. It'll be launched into Earth orbit and, with a, 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 a small stage attached. And then once they check everything out, it'll burn again and uh, it will send uh, uh, the, uh, the crew, the Orion spacecraft, off, off to the moon. But the first 10 minutes are, are critical because uh, a, lot, a lot has to happen correctly in the first 10 minutes or you don't have a, uh, you don't have a mission. What are they trying to glean from Artemis 1 to prepare for the launch of Artemis 2, which is going to happen in either 24 or 25? Yeah, that, Artemis 2 is going to be very exciting because we're going to have a Canadian astronaut on board. So what they're trying to do with Artemis 1 is give, is really just check out all the hardware, the software, all the bits and pieces that you need to, to launch uh, the rocket into space and the spacecraft get off to the moon and come back and re-enter at a very, very high velocity. These, these coming back from the moon, essentially the Earth, Earth's gravity just accelerates you to an inc- incredible speed and then you, hit, you hit the atmosphere and your heat shield has to work properly, otherwise you burn up and your parachutes have to work. So all these things are going to be tested with Artemis 1 and uh, that should lead us to Artemis 2 in 2024, as I say, with four astronauts on board and one of them will be a Canadian astronaut. This the the trip on Artemis 2 will be to fly out to the moon and pass around the moon and then come back again. So uh that'll be the first time uh, people will be on Artemis. So there's two Canadian Space Agency astronauts, uh, Jeremy Hansen and Joshua Kirtrick, uh who are part of the planning process for Artemis 2, which is always very uh, very interesting. Okay. So in the end we go back to the moon. Initially, the race for space was driven on as much geopolitical issues as it was scientific issues. What's the plan or what's the need to get back on the moon now? Because when we're looking through the uh, 
the the new uh, telescope, the the Webb telescope, and we're identifying potential H two O in planets and galaxies far, far and away. We've learned a little bit about the moon. Of course, we've never learned anything in full about these planets. But the race, the race for space was what it was in the sixties and seventies. What constitutes a race to get back on the moon now, and the rationale for? Uh, well, that is the uh, million-dollar question there, Patty, because uh, um, the reason we haven't gone back to the moon for 50 years was no one has come up with a reason to go back or a good enough reason to uh, for the political end of things. And it's, po- it's po- going into space is politics and money. And if you've got a reason to go, then the politics will get behind you and provide the money. Uh, I remember watching Apollo as a kid, and, and already in, in, after the first moon landing, they were – there were headlines of now Mars is next. Well, guess what? Apollo was just a way to get to the moon and back, but not leave any kind of sustainment there. Uh, there was no real money to follow on po- Apollo. In fact, a lot of people got bored with Apollo after the first couple landings. There have been at least four efforts by U.S. presidents to go back to the moon. The first one was in 1989 with the first President Bush. He said we would get back to the moon by 2019. Nothing happened there. His, his son, second President Bush in, 20, in 2004, came up with a great idea to go to the moon by 2020. That fell apart. 2010, Artemis was created, but money has been short, <coughs> sorry, short on Artemis, and it's been 12 years uh, to, to try to, to reach to this point where Artemis was to get us to uh, the first launch, and it was just cutbacks and just just lack of support from from government. So NASA's problem has been it hasn't really come up with a reason to return to the moon. Why spend all this money to go back to the moon? We're not competing against the Russians like we did in the 60s, um, and NASA's still trying to to fit this to work this problem. I wonder what role uh, Apollo 13 played, because then we saw the risk to human life. It's one thing now for us to send the rovers, for instance, to Mars, what have you, but knowing how close we came to a disaster, that attempt to get to the moon, and then, of course, we've all watched with horror when the uh, space shuttle exploded in front of our very eyes. What do you think the issue is regarding the risk of human life versus the drive to get back out there, mainly because we're using such incredible technology? Um, that, that's a very good question. Uh, Apollo 13 did affect Apollo. We were, they had uh, budgeted 10 landings. After Apollo 13, uh, three were canceled right away. Uh, so NASA management were concerned about, the, the, about losing astronauts. In fact, the last Apollo 16 and 17, the last two were nearly canceled because President Nixon was, was about to be reelected, and he didn't want any accidents in space to impact his reelection, if you can believe that. So risk, uh, you're going, it's risky to go into space, uh, but you've got to uh, do as best as you can in building reliable spacecraft to minimize that risk. And the two shuttle accidents were a result of NASA cutting corners uh, on safety in sending people in space, unfortunately. And that was, again, a money issue. Do we have an understanding of what the price tag is for Artemis One or the Artemis missions in full? Uh, it was supposed to be $10 billion when they started in 2010, but the delays have really shot the price up. Uh, so the whole Artemis program right now is $20 billion. This mission is $2 billion. They can only build these things one a, once a year. 
Uh, I have a funny feeling that Artemis is going to just price itself out of existence. When you look at the large rockets that the independent companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin are building, which come close to being able to launch the same amount of payload into space, but for like 10, 20% of the cost. So um, we'll have to see what happens, but a lot of people are saying uh, that maybe after the third or fourth Artemis mission, NASA will have to look hard at at turning to uh, the private companies to, to get them to the moon. People look at moon rocks and, you know, they might be a paperweight for some, but of course, uh, scientifically important for others. What is on the moon to benefit, and I'm talking a material or a a mineral or something, uh, on the moon to benefit what's happening on the ground here on Earth? Are there certain minerals? Sorry? I'm sorry, are there there particular minerals or what have you that can be of benefit to learn from and or to harvest? Well, to get something from the moon back to the Earth, it's got to be very, very uh, valuable. Sure. That's, that, that costs a lot. What, there's two things that we can do on the moon. One is, is the moon has been essentially sitting there for billions of years, not changing. So that really gives us a great opportunity to study uh, the early solar system. Uh, the other thing, though, is, is uh, if you're going to go live on the moon, you're not going to want to have to take water. I mean, anyone who's carried a, a, a four liters of water up a pair of stairs knows that uh, it's, it's pretty heavy. Well, can we harvest things like hydrogen and oxygen and therefore water and fuel and oxygen to, to breathe out of the lunar regolith, the lunar soil, the lunar rocks? Uh, that's a, a big question and, and, and something they're going to work on. And one of the reasons that they're going to land near the South Pole of the moon when they finally get there with Artemis is the idea that there could be water ice still in craters that are in permanent shadow from the sun. So that all this is, is, is part of the, the reason to go back to the moon. Um, but w- will it improve our lives here? Will it bring down inflation or change the cost of, of gasoline or whatever? Unlikely. But again, we've all, people have always been interested in exploring. As soon as we can you know, build an aircraft that will fly, it will fly. As soon as we can build a rocket that doesn't blow up, we'll put people on it. And as you say, we put the James Webb Telescope out there for billions of dollars just so that we can learn more about the universe that we are in. And I think going to the moon and ultimately Mars and becoming uh, a, a species that can fly in space wherever and whenever it wants to, I think is, is a, in the long term uh, a good a good benefit for all of us. Great to have you on the show as usual, Randy. Thanks a lot. You bet, Patty. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. That's Randy Atwood. He's our show's space historian. Uh, Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, tons of time to speak with you about whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Hilda. You're on the air. Good morning, Pat. How are you? Very well. How about you? Actually, I'm uh, a little disappointed this morning. I was just just uh, looking at some information on the, the Veil Virgin that Giovanni Strasse, uh, uh did in 1850. It was uh, presented here in approximately 1856, and is currently at the Presentation Sisters Cathedral Square in St. John. Mm-hmm. This is a priceless piece of art. After doing a little bit of research, I found that the Vatican has many pieces of his work, 
but this is his most valuable place. If he is to sell all the churches, like what's happening here now, which breaks everybody's heart, and especially the memorial sites, should they not have probably sold, if they're going to sell the Vale Virgin, sold that first, it possibly would have eliminated a lot of these sales. It's an excellent question, Hilda. I've never even considered it. I guess it all boils back to what exactly was put in place for negotiation and put on paper for this for the courts to decide what could or would or should not be sold. I'm imagining that this wasn't even included in any form or fashion because quite likely it would have a value very much equal to the combined sale price of an awful lot of the churches, if not all of them. Exactly. I mean, if, if people haven't seen this particular statue, it's Carrera marble, it's flawless, yep. it's uh, one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. I've actually been to the Vatican Museums, and you can see that there are other pieces belong to Straza that are yep. inside. There's also, uh, da, 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 and one of the key, well, the Archbishop something or other in Milan is also uh, yep. another home of his work, so it's extraordinary yep. stuff. But again, this is one of his is is quoted to be one of his very best. Oh, I don't doubt it. It's spectacular. Uh, actually, I saw a piece. I, I can't remember now. It must be about ten years ago that they did on. Could it possibly be two pieces? It was so translucent in in the veil that. And they they did all kinds of tests, and they said, no, it's one solid piece of marble. This is a priceless artifact, over 150, 70 years old. And I uh, think that if if we are to lose it, it should be sold to avoid all these memorial sites and churches being sold. They should not allow that to be put in the Vatican besides artifacts, many artifacts that belong to Aboriginal people that should be returned to them. Uh, They have many priceless arts on the wall there and pictures and and more than ample uh, depart with one picture and and avoid all of this uh, unnecessary uh, uh, torment for everybody here in this province. And uh, I think that somebody should keep an eye on that. Someone should find out if they tend to sell it, then you sell it. You sell our churches, then you sell that piece. You do not get to put that veil virgin in there, the bishops or the Vatican's. Yeah, no argument here. I mean, if yeah. anyone's ever walked through the Vatican museums, without question, an awful lot of compensation that's been ruled on by courts around the world could be satisfied by liquidating some stuff that the Vatican sits on. Absolutely. There's, there's absolutely no question there. It'd be a shame if that uh, particular statue went anywhere, that sculpture went anywhere. I don't know if, um, for folks, if you, if you haven't seen it, I'm pretty sure you have to make an appointment to go see it. You do. You yeah. Do, yeah. So it's Presentation Sisters, Cathedral Square, right there, as everyone can picture where it is. It's something to behold. If uh, Again, yeah. if you have never seen it, it's worth your while. Simply yeah, it extraordinary. And it would avoid all of these sales, and I, I do believe they are very well aware it's there. And uh, I believe they will quietly just take it away and uh, just place it in the Vatican with all the other priceless objects they have, which I, which I would like to say is not paid for by them. It's paid for by people who probably couldn't afford who gave to the church. This, is, this, uh, this ongoing uh, church sale is outrageous. These soldiers that died to protect uh, 
these various uh, country uh, people from uh, totalitarianism and fought for democracy for them to to basically you know just sell their sites i mean they worked with the canadian armed forces nobody uh, no one is stepping in we have uh, some of the best lawyers in Canada here in the province. No one is stepping up and saying, yeah, I know we have a Supreme Court judgment, but let's look at this. There might be a way around this, you know. Nobody is standing up. And I think the MHAs of these communities, I've never heard one speak of. This is very important to a lot of people. And, and no one is, it's just as if it's not even happening, just turning a blind eye. Well, in history, that has been done too often. And uh, it's what basically is it's why the church is being sold. So, I mean, the church is to me is bullying and doing what they want. And uh, they're causing an awful lot of anguish and uh, uh, disappointment for the people, which is in itself a form of abuse. I think that they should have a human rights lawsuit if they had a lawyer in this province that had guts enough to stand up. I think that they should not be allowed to do what they are doing. And that veiled virgin should absolutely be eyed on completely. Now, the Supreme Court of Canada has spoken on this issue. If you wanted an MHA to speak to it, to what end, given the fact that we're not talking about a negotiated settlement that took place in a lawyer's office, this has made its way to the highest court in the land. So at that point, you know, the, some of the compromise has been, well, cemeteries won't be sold and some of those things. I, for starters, don't understand why the St. John's Roman Catholic Episcopal Corporation says that they can own and sell, for instance, St. Gabriel's Hall, which is in the news, right, or Sacred yep. Heart. I don't even know why they think they own these things. But what would you want an MHA to say? Well, just... Uh, Form a similar, uh, some kind of a civil suit, uh, some kind of a, a, a class action civil suit. There are ways around that. There are, I mean, I know the the Vatican had the best uh, lawyers that money could buy, but. Well, no, the Vatican weren't represented. They were, the Vatican wasn't represented on uh, in either side of this particular conversation. It was simply the Roman Catholic Episcopal Corporation. And as someone rightfully points out, the sisters weren't named in the lawsuit. None of their property or belongings are in the fire sale. So. The law has spoken on this. Whether people agree with it or not, I think bigger questions are how can the corporation justify saying that they own a variety of the properties that are for sale? You know, they'll say, well, St. Gabriel's Hall, built 107 years ago. By who? The locals. Not by the church. Not managed by the church. The upkeep wasn't provided by the church. So how and why can that be up for sale? People are saying, well, it's on RC property. Pardon? They don't, yes. Do they own the property that it's on? And how and why, how do they come to own it? Did they pay for it? Yeah. You know? <laughs> Where do they get this property? Where are your papers? Yeah. Why are you selling something that you don't own? I think there is, if, if, the, if the right people were to uh, uh, look at this, they could find a way to at least slow it down to a point where to give them second thoughts. Uh, it, it, this is just not right. And uh, I think this will go down in history as as a terrible thing that happened to the province. I mean, it's it's hard enough now for churches to keep their to keep their churches up, and they've been struggling and struggling. And now to have it just all sweeped away, it's just I think it, it is heartbreaking. But again, the veil virgin. We have to keep an eye on that. Yeah, fair maybe, enough. Maybe, I, 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 maybe we could 
sell that and buy all our churches back. Yeah, I don't think it has anything to do with the current sale and how it's being orchestrated. But it's an interesting point that you brought up this morning, Hilda. I'm glad you called. Thank you. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And look, don't take it from me. If you'd like to see, I don't know if, it can probably very easily be characterized as the most exquisite piece of art in this province, amongst one of the most exquisite exquisite pieces I've ever seen. And not trying to blow it out of proportion, make an appointment, go check it out for yourself. It's mind-blowing just how beautiful it is. Uh, Let's take a break. Michael's in the queue to talk about natural resources, and then we're speaking with you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. The Workday winds down with Greg Smith in the drive. Get up to speed on the day's events and current traffic, weather, and community updates each weekday afternoon on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Michael, you're on the air. Hey, top of the morning to you, Patty, and your listeners. Same to you. Sir, uh, nobody makes me nervous, only you for some reason. Why would I make you nervous? No, just where I'm coming on your show, Patty. And no, I want to ask you I want to ask you a couple of quick questions, and maybe you can clarify a few things for me about our natural resources in Newfoundland. Okay. We got we got nickel, we got iron ore, we got oil, we got pulp and paper, we got a we got a half decent fishery, a crab industry, a lobster, uh, right? And we got oil off or offshore. Uh, where's uh, like every year, Patty? And I hate to keep bringing it up about uh, HM Penitentiary, but for the last twenty-five years, every government has been promised a new prison, and it seems like every election year it fails. And he says it's been signed. They're going to put shovels in the ground. I know that the provincial government—they're not going to cough out a half a billion dollars to build a new prison. And the federal government, they're definitely not going to cover out any money. But it looks like it's happening now, though, Mikey. Yeah, but now, Patty, how long has been saying that? Have you seen any companies up there with heavy equipment, trucks, and excavators digging the ground with a contract in working? Well, I think they've actually spent a bit of money now for the first time. For the longest while, it was simply, this is old, this is antiquated, this is dangerous for both inmates and uh, employees, correctional officers, like that. that, that, that. Now it really does feel like it's about to happen. They've spent money, I think we're all the way through engineering and design now. Location's been settled down up in the White Hills. Uh, I don't know when the plan is to put the shovel in the ground, but I'm actually going to be surprised if it doesn't get built this time. Now, Patty, you know about the White Hills. That's been talked about now for the last 20 years. And what I'm trying to get at were their natural resources. And you know sometimes the fishery is hard. We went through a big struggle with the fishery and our pulp and paper and our oil industry. We has our fluctuation with, you know, our ups and our downs. And it seems like this year everything is abundance down in Newfoundland. And I was wondering, can our provincial government just add that little bit of tax on there and grab that $100 million or $200 million and really put the shovels in the ground, Patty, because now inmates are going into prison for for committing crimes, and they're getting a, a, a prison sentence cut in half because of the conditions in the prison. Yeah, that's not fair. That's not fair to our victims out in society, Patty. Just a quick uh, question yeah. for clarification. He said, "Throw a tax at it. Throw a tax at what? What did you mean by that?" Well, like I'm not probably you know right in what I'm saying. This is where I'm trying to ask you, like our, our taxes on our fishery. You know, maybe they're saying that uh, cod is $3 a pound. Well, why don't we do three fifty a pound? Take that extra 50 cents. 
Yeah. They're, they're, they're grabbing a lot of money and the gas. Where's all that gas money going at? Well, there's actually a tax on that stuff, but the oh, the yeah. price setting on fish, that's why all these things are a little bit different. The logging, pulp and paper industry is different from the mining sector, which is different from the fishery, which is different from oil and gas. So they're all a little bit different yeah. on what government can and cannot do with them. For instance, yes. there's a panel that sets the price of fish and whatever we're hauling out of the water. They set a price. There's all between the independent price setting panel and the FFAW and the Association for Seafood Producers. They come up with the price. Government doesn't oh. doesn't pick that price. No, Versus okay. how you negotiate benefits regarding an oil production platform and or a mine. Generally, in the world of royalty, we've only experienced it from uh, mining and oil. There's never been a royalty associated with the fishery. You know, people will call it a common shared resource, but it's not yeah. really. You know, oh, what the okay. province gets from the fishery is taxes, creation yeah. of jobs, and, you know, yeah. corporate tax and individual taxes for people involved. We don't get a royalty, much like those other two industries. So, yeah. And Mike just, uh, this another Mike, who just sent me an email, said they've actually started the Clare Land and the White Hills for the prison. Because I was actually thinking, Patty, we all should be like the Iron Sheiks, getting a, a check in the mail, wearing big gold chains. We got a lot of natural resources in Newfoundland, sir. Yeah, we do. That's true. Uh, you know, like we're a proud province. We're very strong, Patty, and it just hates to see the struggle in our industry and everybody fighting for that. And I think it's time, Patty. Like you, government. I think this generation are opening up. And they're the ones that are going to really do this, Patty, this new generation. It seems like they're eager, they're open, they're, they're, they're ready to do it. So, yeah, And just for a final, final clarification, uh, so there's machines up on the White Hills this morning. And I haven't been up in that area for a while. My go-to is a little bit the other direction here in right, town. But right. Uh, right, now on east, uh, right now, East Boyd Hills and Harding Road, the machines are right there right now doing their work, clearing the land. So I do think it's happening this time. Some people think it's a waste of money. I don't. I think it's required. But oh they're actually doing it. Patty, Patty, before we go, yeah. if this new prison do get built and we seize correctional... I, Patty, I hate to say it, I was uh, rescued by Correctional Service of Canada. It saved my life, even though I, I deserve what I get. When I went in, I got my treatment. I'm out 11 years, Patty. That's a big, like, new, it's going to change Newfoundland. That's all I'm trying to say. I'm stuttering a little bit. Right. But I just, I don't think it's a waste of time. I think it's, it's well needed. Mental illness, addiction, a criminal justice system is just needed. So if his uh, trucks are down there right now, I'm going to fly home. To see you with my own two eyes, to walk up there to see if they're actually building it. I'll, I'll fly home just to see it. Well, I mean, I haven't been up on the White Hills in a while, I have to admit, but uh, I bet you there's been 10 people since we've started talking here this morning, Mike, uh, that have sent me uh, saying, oh, I was up there walking the other day, the machines are on the ground. So uh, many of these people have no reason to lie to me about that stuff. People, are, respond people are responding to you know, as we're talking? Yeah, real time. Oh, thank you for taking my call. I apologize for calling you petty and bothering you and stuff. You're not bothering me, Mike. Don't worry about it. Yeah, um, it's going to be really good for Newfoundland. Trust me, from somebody that got speaking from experience, it's going to change Newfoundland. And thank you for the government if they're doing this. Take good care of yourself, Mike. God bless you, right. sir, and your listeners. Bye. You too, Mikey. Bye-bye. Let's keep rolling. Line number two. Tom, you're on the air. Yes, good morning. Morning. Uh... This sugar tax. Yep. Uh, how, how is that supposed to work? <laughs> Good question. The, the big corporations is loading up our food with sugar, 
And then some people got to pay for it. What for? Why? Well, Why I suppose they put less sugar in their, in their drinks. They can. That's what they tried in the United Kingdom. They put the tax at the manufacturing point, so that the manufacturers were forced to lower sugar content. Consequently, consumers only had options that had less sugar. Um, but I guess you know, we do make our own choices. So when you it's, go to the store, it's the, same, it's the same way with the with the sodium, forty and fifty percent salt. Yeah, and some preserved and products. Food, what for? And they, t- they tell us to live healthy. How can you live healthy? Well, you can. People make choices. They can either pick yes, something. you've got to make choices. Yeah. You're, you're right there. And very strict choices, too. Well, I don't know. I think we're learning a little bit more about how you can eat healthier, how you can substitute one product for another that has, you know, similar nutritional content, but it has less of what people will refer to as bad, whether it be different kinds of fats or sugar or sodium or whatever. And I don't think it really costs as much as people sometimes use as an excuse. I can't eat healthy because it costs too much. In some things, for some products, that's probably absolutely true. But, you know, we had a dietitian on here, I don't know when it was, months and months ago, spelling out how to shop for a five-day supper plan and giving us an idea what it costs versus if I put forward a five-day supper plan that included pork chops and taco Tuesday and hamburgers and whatever else. And you, you can indeed make some healthier choices and not break the bank. But the, the concept of how the consumer is going to end up paying for the additional 20 cents a liter, that's right. Unless people all of a sudden, if you like Pepsi, maybe Diet Pepsi is what you're going to buy. Consequently, you won't have to pay the tax. Maybe you'll move to a natural fruit juice versus another one. Well, I'll give you an example. Now, sure. I buy apple juice. It's less than a liter. Are you going to charge 20 cents on that? They're going to charge whatever fraction of the a liter is appropriate. 946 milliliters, which is less than a liter, and they're going to charge 20 cents on that. They probably so, will. Uh, what you end up, you're end up paying with 30 cents a liter. It was all, all straightened up. Yeah, look, I don't... Most, most drinks have <coughs> got less than a liter in it. But yet you're, you're going to pay 20 cents on it. I don't know. I don't think you are. I see some of the calculations that are being applied. We understand how much they're going to charge on a uh, tin of 355 milliliters, and it's not 20 cents. So I assume it's quite fundamental. It's going to be so complicated. What's that? It's going to be really complicated. No, I think if it's half a liter, it's 10 cents. Well, If it's well, a quarter, it's 5 cents. I bought a container of apple juice, 946 liters. You pay 8 cents on the bottle. There's no HST on it. I bought a bottle of peach juice, and you charge HST on it. Now, what's the difference in peach juice and apple juice? Well, some things, well, they call different uh, points of sale product. Like, for instance, if I go to a coffee shop and I get a coffee with sugar in it, I don't pay it because it was a point of sale product they made for me. Versus if I go to the grocery store, something's there labeled with a, uh, a top on it. It's already on the shelf. So there, there's lots of different variables here and exemptions that are part of this, which is what I think part of what the general public doesn't quite understand at this point, which is fair enough, because there's a lot of exemptions. There's a big, long list of stuff. Maybe I should start reading it out again, because I've read them out on this program at least a dozen times, but I suppose given the fact September 1 is right around the corner, I'll have to do it again. And uh, pineapple juice is a sweet juice. Sure. And Mark, right on the, can- the container, no sugar added. Will they charge 20 cents for that to... Uh Pineapple juice because it's sweet? No, they'll call it an all-natural fruit juice, and they're exempt. Uh-huh. It comes some fun at the cashier to check it out. I know that if I buy stuff and they're charging 20 cents, they're not supposed to, they're going to hear about it. Oh, of course. Why wouldn't they? Yeah. 
Anyway, Tom, appreciate the time. Get uh, the all natural uh, I think it's going to cause a lot of confusion myself. I think it probably will. Yeah. And it seems like the big corporations are doing what they like. I, I, think, they, I think they own the government themselves the way they're getting on. They can do what they like. Yeah, but you we don't have it. to buy their junk if we don't want to either. No, I know, but I mean, uh, they're talking about they're living healthy. Well, give us healthy food. I see it. Sure, but there's healthy food out there. There's lots of stuff that's easy, less expensive, possibly, uh, more to our taste bud satisfaction. You know, if you have a, if you like the salt, you love the salt. If you like the sugar, you'll have a sweet tooth and you'll buy whatever suits your fancy. There's options out there that, you know, we all have our habits built in, though, right, don't we? We go to the shop, we know what we like, and that's what we get. And some people, yeah. one of the hardest things to do is to change your diet because it just feels like a big monumental task. We're all used to cooking the stuff that we're used to eating, the stuff that we like, that satisfies our palate. And maybe, just maybe with some, you know, I, I must say my diet has changed a little bit for the better given the fact that my wife is a lot smarter than I am and has made some of those choices yeah. on my behalf. <laughs> but anyway, not everyone's got that. Tom, well, last uh, word to you because i got to go. Uh, any, I can, well, one last thing. Sure. I'm 91 years of age. I'm trying to live healthy. I, if I lived the way that, that, that uh, those big cooperating wanted me to live, I wouldn't be here today. I'd be dead. Well, good on you, Tom. You show moves, boss. Eh? You show moves, boss. Yeah, I'm trying to live healthy. Good. Good man. You sound great. Yeah, okay. Th thanks for taking my call. Anytime, Tom. Take care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, uh, it is time for the newscast. When we come back, how are we doing on the phone, Fonts? Let's get her going. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Oh, welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Jennifer, you're on the air. Hi, Jennifer on one. Hi, how are you today? Very well. Thanks for asking. How are you doing? Good. Thank you very much. Um I'm calling today regarding the healthcare in the central region due to the shortage of doctors. Uh, I'm not, I'm sure most people have heard about it, but I don't know if anyone truly understands uh, the extent of it. Um, I'm calling from Bayverse. Uh, we lost our permanent doctor this past June, and there's nine health centers in the central region, and five of us are without a permanent doctor. At times, that means that we have no emergency care and we have no primary care, which means that we're relying on regional centers such as Grand Falls and Gander that aren't really designed or staffed to accommodate the influx of the surrounding communities in the central region. Not to mention that some of us are driving two to two and a half hours in an emergency situation, and then we're facing wait times of up to nine hours once we're there. This past week, Bayvert Peninsula Health Center experienced six days of diversion, which means that we had no emergency care and very minimal outpatient clinics. At a number of given times this last week, six of our nine health centers in Central were being diverted to a regional center at the exact same time. The healthcare in the Central region, in my opinion, is not getting better. It's getting worse by the day. And according to my calculation, in the last 59 days, our hospital in Bayvert was on diversion 30% of the time, and 9% of it was on virtual. We're going to creep up to the 50% mark, and then we're going to get to the 60. And before we know it, we're going to lose our healthcare facility, and we're not going to get them back. And basically, I call today to encourage 
the residents of central Newfoundland to reach out to their MHA and client relations with central health to voice their concerns because there's power in numbers. We, well, of course, sitting in this chair, I hear about this a lot. And central health seems to be a uniquely impacted health authority, to be honest. We know we've seen diversions in other places uh, in other parts of the province, but they are repeatedly happening. In Central, we talked about a story last week where there was three emergency rooms in particular that were closed more often than they were open over a three-week stretch. That's, of course, a massive big deal. When you talk about not only emergency services not being available, but just how far you might have to travel, say, for instance, from Bonavista to the next closest opportunity. Then you add into it where the ambulances might be and how long a round trip will be for an ambulance. Consequently, waiting to offload a patient, driving long distances with someone on board in an emergency. Then, of course, the next person who may need that service in that community, there's no ambulance available. So this becomes bigger than simply the inability to walk in an emergency room door at one clinic or another. We're told to believe that the summer months make it even more complicated as people try to get some time off, whether that be registered nurses, LPNs, nurse practitioners, or doctors, and that it might be a little bit easier to manage come the fall and the winter of the year. I'm not so sure I'm buying that because if you look down the road, there is going to be some places with a certain level of service that they're used to today that it might not be there in the future for a variety of reasons, whether it be emergency rooms or other types of clinics that are in different parts of the province. So this is not going away. I think we're at the heights of it right now. I've never heard of, of it being as, this, uh, as bad as it is. And then I think you made an intro- interesting mention, Jennifer. He said that not only were their places closed, but the further reliance on virtual care. I think mm-hmm. for better or worse, we're going to have to get used to that because that's going to be a big part of the way how we see healthcare administered in the province. It well, doesn't work for everything. It doesn't work for everyone. But we're going to see it a lot more common than people realize what's happening today. What do you think? I agree. And, I mean, I'm on board with it. I think a doctor virtually is better than no doctor at all. Uh, I'm a mother of a three-year-old, mm-hmm. and uh, he has severe allergies. Um, so... I take an instance last year. Uh, he was at daycare. I got a call. Um, they accidentally gave him mayonnaise, and he's severely allergic to eggs. Uh, I left work, and um, I arrived at his daycare to a child that was unrecognizable. Uh, I did administer an EpiPen, and I drove him to a hospital that was open two minutes away where I was able to give him to a nursing staff and a doctor to administer the correct um uh, healthcare. Um, when there's no, when we're on diversion, I don't even have that option. I either have to call an ambulance and wait 45 minutes or an hour, or if they're not in the vicinity, or choose to drive my child that may, you know, have incur breathing issues. Uh, the 174 climbers to the nearest emergency. At least with virtual care, um, I can still bring them to a hospital that's two minutes away and they can uh, administer the required drugs um, in that emergency situation. And the same thing with people that are incurring heart attacks or strokes, like they have minutes. So if we don't have doctors, I am on board with virtual care because at least our, our hospital is open. It's not closed and we don't have to drive the two hours to a place, um, our nearest emergency room. It's 
an issue right across the province. And, you know, depending on where you are and how close the next emergency room will be or clinic or family doctor, we all have different circumstances. Like, put it this way. I live in the east end of St. John's. I just last week got a call from Eastern Health that I've been accepted as a patient at one of the new collaborative care clinics on Monday Pond Road. I haven't had a family doctor in a couple of decades. Now, mm-hmm. some of that's because I wasn't looking for one, but now that I have been looking for one and I went through Patient Connect NL, I just got an, uh, an intake interview with the nurse, I guess it was last Friday. For, so for the first time now, I have an appointment for a family doctor. I'm pretty relieved, I have to say. But I think it's just been a problem near and far. Urban centers, smaller communities, isolated communities, and whether or not it's going to get better, like the government, I think, has put some policies in place that are hoping to try to look for instance with rural isolated communities and an er shift they're going to pay you eight hundred dollars extra on top of your rate of pay to get you to work a shift there mm-hmm. some of these things with the extra five seats at memorials Munns med school and the uh, expansion of the family residency program all these types of things i think will help in the medium and long term but will they deal with the immediacy of the concern very likely not most likely not. No, and we're we're dealing with wait times. I mean, I agree. Central Health has put um, health hubs and uh, I think it's the Killick uh, call line. You can call and try and book an appointment. We have no family doctor, but you're waiting um, weeks to even get an appointment with them. So not only do we not have emergency care, we don't have primary care. I appreciate making time this morning, Jennifer. Thanks for this. Thank you. Have a good day. Same to you. Bye bye. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> Lord knows we hear a lot about it, and we'll continue to talk about it. That's up to you. When we come back, Tim's in the queue to talk about an ultramarathon. Look out. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number two. Good morning, Tim. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you? Great, sir. How about you? Not too bad. Getting a little little nervous. Big undertaking, I think I heard you mention on the last before the break. Um, you know, it's a long weekend. Everybody's heading out of town, maybe coming into town, but a few uh, of us crazy trail runners and mountain runners are heading out to Cornerbrook for uh, one of Newfoundland's only ultramarathon events. Yeah, you said it, not me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's uh, an ultramarathon, just for anybody who doesn't know, is any, any foot race uh, greater than a marathon. So, you know, a marathon is 42.2 kilometers. Uh, if you run 43, it's considered an ultramarathon. However, uh, typically uh, 50 kilometers is the first uh, level of ultramarathon that's offered through races. Um, and the Cornbrook race this weekend is, this, I think, is the second time it's run now. It's very new. Uh, but you have two options, a 50K and a 100K option, um, which is absolutely crazy. Um, and I, I really, I know you're a big athlete, uh, athletics guy. You know, you're always propping up the... Uh, local sports and stuff. And I think it's really important to kind of get the word out about uh, these ultra marathon races. There's now three in the province. Um, the East coast trail has one that's a 50 kilometer. That's every end of October. Usually mm-hmm. that starts in Cooch Cove and runs to Kitty Bitty village along the East coast trail. Uh, there's rock cut ultra, which is in Twillingate. Uh, that one's in three weeks after this one, it'll be the 24th of October and now steep uh, ultra mountain race in Cornerbrook. Um, you know, it's going to be a great event. It's something to see that is, uh, you know, the fact that there's only been a couple in our, in our province and there's that many trails out there is fantastic. 
to see it coming, but it's been a long time coming, and we're really excited about it. I think it's cool. Uh, my wife's a runner. You know, she's done Cape to Cabot a few times and stuff like that. So I hear about running in my house all the time. I'm an unfortunate old hockey rugby player. Running is not in the cards for me, but you know, biking and doing other things is. But I had a quick look at this during the break because I know what we're going to talk about. So it's quite a difference between running a trail in and around town versus taking on some of these mountain terrain type of trails here. Leg one of the 50K race, he's a 910-meter elevation gain in the first leg of 14.2 kilometers. This is not for the faint of heart. Yeah, but the second one's only like 80 meters. It's along the road. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, but you're right. You're right. And, Petty, that's something that I think a lot of people may not associate with trail and ultramarathon races and mountain races is, the elevation gain is really what you push for, right? A lot of people train for marathons, you know, the Huff and Puffin, or which will now be the Uniform Services run that uh, uh, Athletics Northeast is putting off now in the fall. Um, you know, a lot of that stuff, um, you know, is, is awesome, and there's huge athletic feats, right? Anybody who's ever run a marathon or hasn't even can tell you how big of an undertaking that might be. But when it comes to trail races and mountain, everybody talks about, you know, throw your mile split out the window. It's all about how much vert you get, how many, how much elevation gain. Uh, in feet or meters and this race has over 2,000 I believe it's almost 2,200 meters of climb over uh, the 50 between 50 and 52 kilometers say whatever the total distance is um, you know and it's most the vast majority of it is on single track uh, or mountain bike trails or something like that right stuff that um, is similar to the East Coast Trail uh, for a lot of it you get a lot of climbing and that's the big thing right um, you know me and my partner we've been training for it uh, around Signal Hill. So we start in the gut and we run up and over Cuckles Cove down into towards the Battery Cafe and Signal Hill Trail and back and do multiple laps of that, right? That's a 10-kilometer loop and about 500 meters of climb, uh, you know, and for perspective for anybody who walks it, Signal Hill from the bottom of Temperance Street, uh, the last mile of the, of the Cape Cabas, as you are, said you're familiar with, mm-hmm. um, that's, about, that's about a mile to the top and about 140 meters. That's it. So it is about the equivalent of, you know, 12 to 15 times up and down, um, that that hill there, um, you know, what we're going to cover throughout the day. Uh, and that's just 50 kilometers, right? The, the 100 kilometer does the course twice. They go out and back. Um, it's, it's really impressive uh, feat of athleticism. 100%. And the top of temperance, that's where I always stand to cheer on the runners, including my wife, before they take on Signal Hill. It's extraordinary stuff. So if you've even just been out on the West Coast and are familiar with the man in the mountain, or you've skied at Marble and know where the new shooter, the Tuckmore Tangle is, there's an idea of the kind of steepness we're talking about running. It's really extraordinary stuff. For anyone sign up for either one of these legs, the 50 point, and I just saw the total for uh, the 50 is 50.4K in the first one, and the 100, I think, is also a little bit over 100. Yeah, it's 101.2 kilometers, 4,152 meters, 13,502 feet in elevation gain for the racers in the 100K. So amazing stuff, and, of course, you'll get those vistas that you can't achieve without being well up into the hills, whether it be at Marble or the old Man in the Mountain, which I'm familiar with that too. And uh, I can't I can't imagine getting up without taking my time and walking and taking taking it easy. Only other than preparing for the cardio demands and what have you, how do you prepare for the uneven terrain? Because sometimes you kind of lose a bit of focus about where your feet are hitting the ground when you become quite tired, and then you throw in the sweat and the potential for heat. How do you train for what would be the footing? Because that brings another layer of complication. Well, the big thing with this is, um, you know, is really getting your reps on the trails. Like getting out, if you're from the East Coast, getting out on the East Coast trails, or if you're in Cornbrook and you're 
you're lucky enough to run in that area or even gross horn, getting out there and spending time on your feet in those trails is really important and longer time, right? You want to, and a lot of the training comes with back to back days of training. So you're training on tired legs. So you start to, and, and it, it, as you mentioned, it's not just a physical feat. It's a lot of mental uh, capacity that's required for these types of races. And, uh, you know, just having really quick feet, uh, you know, when you're on the road, road running, you can zone out, right? Like it's about getting in a rhythm on the road, you know, like, you know, there's times when I've run the telly 10, or, you know, and, you know, a mile would pass. You didn't even realize because you're just zoned in or you're working out your daily problems. You do that on these courses. You can fall off the side of a cliff, right? You got to really pay attention, um, you know, and have quick feet, short, quick steps. And uh, honestly, the vistas are something you want to appreciate on these races. But if you're competing, you probably don't look up very much at all. A lot of it is you're, you're looking down at your feet, maybe a couple of meters ahead, picking your line, just like skiing or mountain biking or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's that's the real mental challenge of those races. And then, uh, as you know, once you get into lake three or so, you're pretty tired, right? You've got you to gotta, you gotta work harder to keep get your legs up over to little rocks and stumps and, and roots, um, as well as trying to stay focused and even stay in a good mood, right? That's one of the hardest things. You start getting cranky. Can you imagine, right? Like you're out there that long and you're tired and you're hurting and your body's going to tell you to stop. Um, it's a given at that distance. Your body's like, just give up. You're out here seven hours now. What are you doing? You know, um, but you got to just fight through it and, uh, you know, just staying, having practice, being familiar with, with how to run trail and, um, you know, just enjoying the moment and taking it one moment at a time is probably the best advice uh, anybody can give. Excellent points. You brought up something there I was going to ask about, but first, do you have any idea how many people are registered to run in either the 50 or the 100? Uh, I believe it's around 30, 35 for 100K, which is really impressive, to be honest. Yeah. Um, you don't you don't see that option in Newfoundland. This is the only one, um, and it's only happened once. It happened last year. Uh, fellow Jordan Fewer from Cornerbrook won it last year, and he's the favorite, I believe, again this year. Uh, there is a few mainlanders coming down for it. A buddy of mine's actually flying from Calgary to run the 100K. Um, and uh, then the, I believe in the 50, there's... 65, 70 people, maybe. That's amazing. Um, I, I could be wrong on that. Now, you, it, there is a there's a, a very common website in that world called Ultra Sign Up, and that's where you can look up all the information on who's running. It puts entrance lists in there. It actually gives some of the potential or estimated times based on your previous experiences and things like that. Um, you know, but it, just getting that type of interest, you know, to come out there. And, and I got to give a shout out to Michaela Pye. Uh, she's a she's a res, uh, uh, not a resident, actually, she spends most of her time in, in B.C. and Alberta in the mountains doing guiding and tree planting and has a business out there that they run in backcountry. But she's really kind of took it out and said, you know what, it's time that Newfoundlanders can show off what we can do in the mountains. You know, there's a lot of us that do a lot of these trail runnings for years and years and years that you'd never see. You'd never know. I mean, I could tell you everybody on that start list, Patty, and I would say even your wife as a runner might not even know who they are. Oh, probably you not. Know, because yeah. they just stay to themselves. They get on the trails. And they just enjoy it. And it's not about, you know, trying to qualify for Boston anymore, right? It's about getting out and seeing. The, the Vista is, is the big thing. I lived in, in Calgary for years. And what I loved about trail running and big distance trail running like that is that you could go places in a single day that you would normally have to take two or three days in backpacking with all the weight on your back and do, right? And you can go out in an afternoon or, you know, six or seven hours and get 35, 40 kilometers in and really get to experience it. And it, uh, it lets you see the province or the area wherever you are in a completely different way, uh, all under the power of your own body and your own mind. And that, that's something that I think uh, is very, very important and very uh, unique to, uh, 
to that kind of event. I'm very envious of all 100-ish that are registered for either distance. Uh, do you set a time goal? Because, you know, if you're running the telly, for instance, someone will say, well, this is the year that I break 80 or whatever number they come up with. Is that part of trail running and these types of ultra marathons? It can be, but it's very course dependent because, like, you know, road courses vary. They do, but not as much as trail running uh, and trail races would vary, right? You know, there's some that are a little more flat, some that are like the East Coast Trail, the highest point on the trail is like 200 meters above sea level. And there's almost 2,000 meters again on that one, and there's 1,800. So you're up and down, up and down, up and down. Whereas in Cornerbrook, there's only like really like I think three or four major climbs. Um, so the courses vary very much. Um, but yeah, generally most people, it's just like any athletic, uh, you know, competition, like some fellas now and, and ladies are going out to win, you know, like they're, they don't, they're not really focused on how long it takes them as long as they're ahead of whoever's behind them. Um, you know, and they put their best effort myself. I'm not a competitive runner. This is the first time I've, I'm going out to run 50 kilometers. Um, you know, and same thing with my partner, like, uh, she and I are going out and we're just going to try and do it. I mean, honestly, if I can get in under eight hours, I'll be really happy. Um, you know, that'll be a good day for me. Um, and I believe Mel is the same way. Um, and you know, some people like last year, uh, fella Connor Fury, God love him. What an amazing runner he is. He's from Newfoundland. He's from St. John's, uh, former Holy Cross soccer player, uh, now lives in Edmonton and he came down and he beat the course off. He did it in five and a half hours on the 50 kilometers last year. Um, he won by over an hour and a half. Um, it was impressive, an impressive feat of athleticism. Um, you know, and, you know, guys like that, elite runners can do that. Um, you know, and then, you know, there's other people that, you know, plug along kind of like in your Tele tens, right? There's fellas and ladies from 60 minutes all the way up to two hours. It's the same type thing. Uh, it's just scaled up a little bit <laughs> instead of 10 miles is, uh, over 30. Well, listen, Tim, thanks for telling us about it. So it's coming up this weekend. Congratulations and good luck to all the participants, especially to you and your partner for telling us about it today. Enjoy it. Have fun. Be careful. We will. Thank you so much, right? And uh, I, I extend the same congratulations. Good luck to everybody on the course. I'm really looking forward to meeting the community. Um, you know, and hopefully it can, uh, if we can grow the community even further and start having smaller level trail races here on the East Coast or anywhere in the island to get everybody out and interested, um, you know, and just grow the community. Let me know how it goes. Absolutely, I will. Thanks, Thanks Tim. Buddy. All the best, buddy. Bye-bye. 50K, 100K, it's up to you. Wow. The website's actually pretty cool. They describe the course on graphs for elevation change, what have you. It's called nlmountainultra.weebly.com. Weebly is W-E-E-B-L-Y. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, you know the deal. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. This is Open Line on VOCM. And welcome back. All right, let's go. Line number one, Don, you're on the air. How you doing today, sir? Okay, you? Uh, I'm still alive. Uh, I just a couple of questions for you. You're, you're talking about virtual care. Can the virtual care doctor prescribe my prescription for me? Yeah. He can't. Yeah, there might be different. Mm -hmm. I, I guess it depends on prescription. But yes, virtual care can indeed come with a prescription at the end of it. It can. Okay. The second one is because I know nurse practitioners, just why I talk about privatization. Nurse practitioners got clinics open, but they cannot prescribe a controlled substance. Okay. So that, that means I got to go get my other six prescription and two that's controlled. I got to go to the emergency room again. Okay. So why, what's, what's the point of going in and paying $30, $35, get six prescriptions, and I still got to go to the emergency room and get two more? Well, that might not be the best option for you then, I guess, Don. 
well, it's not, but I mean, you know. And then I don't see no problem with doctors in St. John's. I congratulate you. You got a doctor. Just got one. Just got a yeah. call last week. And that's, I that's tell you great. what, I applied to be on that list. Oh, man. Months and months and months ago. I was a long time on that list. I kind of forgot about it, to be honest. Well, how did you know about the Clabber Care Clinic that Dr. Aggie staffed in, in a couple of days, more or less? He staffed in two Clabber Care or three. I don't know how many in St. John's. Three. But there's no problem there. He staffed all them. Well, so I, I just like to know who's hiring the doctors in New Holland, Labrador. Well, the regional health authorities are directly responsible for hiring the doctors where they operate. But the, the questions surrounding the staffing of those uh, care clinics wasn't quite as cut and dry as you uh, painted out to be because there was a question for one of them that one of the GPs, one of the family doctors, was simply a family doctor that had a practice in Mount Pearl, wasn't able to take the entirety of her 3,000 patients with her, and so basically we had a doctor that was working there is now working here. So some of the staff are new, but not all. That's the trick to these new clinics. I think they're a good idea. I think they will work. Oh, but you, I didn't no, I never said it. Sorry, yeah, I didn't say it was a bad idea. I didn't say you did. But they don't have no problem staffing them. But yet we got problems like uh, down around all the other communities of losing doctors. Emergency rooms are closed. Yeah. Any emergency rooms closed in St. John's? No. No. Well, I think it's probably easier, if we're being honest, I think it's probably easier to attract and to keep a doctor in a larger, larger urban center with the various amenities and opportunities and different kinds of schools and programs and athletics and stuff. It's, that's why I think it's always different for Dr. Megan Hayes, the new deputy minister responsible for the recruitment and retention of healthcare workers. It's different to try to get someone to work, and I use this example all the time, oh, actually, and the minister responsible uh, for the industry energy technology from Burjo Lapoil. It's probably difficult, more difficult to get a doctor in Burjo than it is in St. John's. It's probably different to get one in Clarenville than it is in Cornerbrook. So they're all different. That's why I think you don't see quite the extent of the problems with closures and diversions in town because there's more and more staff living in and around the metro region that work in the clinics, that work in the hospitals. Okay, here's the second question now. I remember about a month ago or something that a doctor was going to leave a certain area because... Her job was up, her limit was up in, in that area, and she had to reapply. Mm -hmm. So what happened? Why should she have to reapply? She's already there. She's situated. So what's the sense of that? Well, why wouldn't she, she have there? to? Yeah, I mean, there probably should be accommodations and flexibility in every case to be treated on its own merit. But I don't know how having to reapply is that big and onerous task, to be honest. Well, I do, because she was already there. She said she wanted to stay there. But the government of New Glenn Labrador said no. Nor do I think well, it's as cut and dry as that, either. Well, every, everything should be cut and dry. That's the problem. That's the problem we have with life. Nothing's cut and dry no more. I don't think it ever was. But... If I'm a doctor here in Steve Mill, I want to stay in Steve Mill, and my term is up to one of these uh, health care machines, why shouldn't I just stay in steam mill? Why should I have to reapply to my position? I think you're taking one isolated case and making it the, the standard across the board, when I don't think that's the reality. So, yeah. Okay, here's the reality. Last How many one. times did you spend in a waiting room for 13, 14 hours? I've done it. You've done it? Yeah. 
Hey, you're the first one ever told me to cook then on that one. Well, no, I have. I tell you, I had a cyst that was infected, and I was trying to ride it out for a number of days until I woke up one morning, middle of the night, and thought, I just can't handle it anymore. I was 10.5 hours before I got into actually a doctor. I was in one of the inside rooms after about eight hours, but I think if I remember correctly, this is years ago now, it was 10.5 hours before I actually saw the doctor and had the procedure to relieve me of the pain. Okay, good for you. Because I've known Good people with clout, and I've seen people with money, and I've drove them to the emergency room myself. They never spent no more than 15 minutes. They went in the back door and got done. Well, I got no clout or money, so I guess that's why I didn't get it. Oh, you got clout. You got more clout than you know. <laughs> well, not there. Like, I wouldn't even expect to walk in and uh, speak to a triage nurse and expect I'm getting ahead of anyone because of whatever perceived or pretend clout. Like, I don't, that but doesn't it, cross my mind, because that, to me, is moronic, and it shouldn't happen, period. Now, if you right. have a doctor buddy who's willing to do you a favor and see you after right. hours, then that's fair enough. I mean, we all have friends, and whether it be mechanics or doctors or oh, lawyers yeah. or something, that we can get exactly. someone to do us a solid, but it shouldn't happen in the hospital setting. I shouldn't be able to walk in and out. That's right, and I've seen it happen. I've done okay. it, so. Anyway. People, too. So... Anyhow, next time I talk to you about affordable housing. Okay, we can do that next time. Okay, and I thank you for your time. Take care, Don. All the best. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Let's go. Line number three, Rosie, you're on the air. Uh, Interesting show. (laughs) Sometimes it is. Yes, my gosh, yes. Uh, yes, a lot of people think I'm smart like you. They're asking me uh, when, uh, like, uh, you know the oil rebate you got on the go, right? Do you have to apply for it? You have to apply. yeah. Oh, so how do you do that? There's two ways. You can call or send an email. The number I'll have to grab, but I do know the email mm-hmm. off the top of my head. It's homeheatprogram at gov.nl.ca. Okay. And what's the other way? Uh, you can call them. Uh, generally, email is always much easier, but let's see here. Da, 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 da. Oh, my God. Oh, okay. my God. I don't even have a pen. Well, then you're not going to – I don't know if you're going to remember this one, but it's a toll-free number. It's one eight seven. Oh, wait. One second. One second. I've got my pen. Okay, okay, go ahead. 1-877-1877-745-745-1339. 1-3-3-9. Is it? Oh, gosh, thank you so much. You're all set, Rosie. Good luck with it. Okay, yeah, thank you again. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Yeah. Uh, so let's just see. Quick check on the Twitter. Heather says, Typically, we get a nurse practitioner travel to Ramia. As for medical emergencies, the patient has to go on the ferry to Burgio and then often on to Cornerbrook. She says brutal, and I don't have an argument against that, which is the only point I'm ever making on that front, is it becomes an extremely complicated issue and policy and approach to how we recruit a healthcare worker throughout the entire gamut of them for one place or another because not all situations are created equal. Now, it doesn't mean that it's an unattractive option to work on Fogo Island, Burgio, Ramia, uh, Happy Valley Goose Bay, or anywhere in between. It just becomes a different approach that's required because it's a different place. Let's take a break. Oh, here we go. The minister responsible for industry, energy, and technology. He's the liberal member for Burgio La Poil, Andrew Parsons. We're going to talk a little green hydrogen, I suppose, right after this. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number four. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Virgil Lapoil. He's the Minister of Industry, Energy, and Technologies, Andrew Parsons. Good morning, Minister Parsons. You're on the air. 
Hey, Patty. How are you? Very well. You? This is it now. Just trying to <laughs> keep holding on to the last bit of summer here, trying to enjoy every bit of it. Ah, looks like it's going to be a nice week and hopefully a nice September, which we hopefully will get. All right, let's go. Green hydrogen. It's almost hard to know where to start, to be honest with you, but let me start with this. Given the fact that there's been this joint intent of declaration of intent or whatever they're calling it these days, the MOU, it gives a lot of folks the perception that it's cart before the horse. We haven't even had a final approval of World Energy GH2 here. How can it not be anything but that? Because they're talking tight timelines, export by 24, maybe 25, when nothing's even been approved, let alone built. Absolutely. So I, I can say that I actually got a call from an individual this morning, just a regular constituent, not even from my area. And basically, that's what he was asking, saying, you know, talking about it seems like this is happening and that's happening. What's actually going on? And the reality is that there is a perception out there due to a lot of it, you know, everything going on last week and some of the reporting and all the announcements that things are already done or things are already approved. When the reality is that they are not. I cannot control what uh, proponents or media or any individual wants to say about where things are and how they are going. Well, all I can control is the process, which we announced just over a month ago now. So the, the reality is that nothing, even when it comes to crown land, the, I guess the crown land aspect of this, nothing has been approved yet. Companies still have another month in which they're going to reach out to us and let us know exactly where they want to go. Now, many have uh, talked about it publicly. Many have gone to these communities in advance, which I don't think is a bad thing. Uh, but again, yes, I, I absolutely agree with what you're saying. Uh, a lot of talk about last week. Certainly, it was very positive. We love the fact that you know the world is coming to us and investments coming to us. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you you sort of you know you have the way urgency versus having a strong regulatory and environmental process. Environmental process. Let's stick with that for a second. So. My understanding is that the initial proposal said very clearly it's the establishment of 164 wind turbines, the ammonia hydrogen plant, we know that deal, but send them back to the drawing board for more work to be done. They're also talking that we're assessing one-third of the possibility of the magnitude of this project. Mr. Risley himself says it can triple in size. Are we environmentally assessing the potential for the triple in size or simply the one-third that they're putting forward to begin with? So I can honestly say that being, I guess, the industry side of this and not I'm really trying not to cross over to the environmental side. I don't know what is in front of the Department of Environment or the regulator will say on that, nor do I think it's appropriate that I'd be making calls to them. So I've heard, I've seen what's being applied for. But the other side of this is you can you can go through an environmental approval process as much as you want. Right now, we have not even indicated what land in this province is even going to go up for bid. That's just that's not even going to be till possibly December. We have not heard from all the companies. We have not gone through a consultation process. So the biggest thing that I'm putting out to individuals now, because they're asking good questions. I mean, the size and scope of this, where are they going to be? How is it going to impact uh, my, you know, my livelihood? And I've had outfitters call me. I've had individuals just concerned about the environmental side or the impact on, say, caribou or any kind of, uh, you know, population. We haven't gone through any of that process yet, uh, even through our shop. So there's still a lot of time here. So I can't tell you exactly where certain proponents want to go or what they've said. Our process is not even closed. We have not had, that's still at least a month away. We've indicated October 1st. So lots of time there, and there's going to have to be a lot of due diligence and conversations and consultation 
as part of this because we're only going to get one chance to do this right and we really don't want to mess it up. Well, then let's talk about it from an industry stake uh, or stance. So what's the motivation for the Germans or the government of Canada or anyone to sign a deal on something that is yet to be approved? There's no such thing. Like, we're not producing any of the product at this moment in time. So where does anybody get the motivation to sign on to something which at this moment is non-existent? If we well, don't already have a plan to go ahead and green light it. Well, all I can tell you, look, I, again, I wasn't a part of German-Canadian conversations, and I think they're certainly very aspirational. There's no doubt. I mean, I've had conversations with, uh, you know, not the German chancellor, but certainly the consulate about, look, they've indicated the world knows what their needs are. Everybody knows that, and it's been exacerbated by events of the last six to nine months, possibly more. So they are very much interested in trying to get new energy and get it here. They realize the opportunities here. Obviously, I think from a federal standpoint, they'd like to see that done. They've signed this MOU, but nothing has been greenlit. Nothing has been greenlit. And just because somebody comes here and signs an MOU doesn't mean that we're going to throw a process out the window here or do something that's only going to cause us harm down the road. So I come back to these principles again. We know there's an urgency. Everybody gets it. But that doesn't mean that behind some closed door, this has all been worked out and everything signed up. That's not the case. That's not what I've signed up for. Uh, so I, I keep those pillars of, or those responsibilities, we'll say, in mind the entire time. We also don't want to fall behind here. We, as a province, we want to be amongst the first to get into this. We don't want to lose that opportunity, uh, but not certainly not at you know, every cost. At the proposal at this stage, what's the relationship between World Energy GH2 and our grid? Whether it be access to power from our grid and or selling power back to our grid. So there's a couple of different things here, and, that, and this is absolutely a huge component to this, is what can the grid withstand? What can, you know, what, uh, I guess, uh, leeway do we have in terms of allowing people to sell into the grid and what power do we have to provide here? So we're still waiting on some studies from Hydro, which hopefully are going to be here in the next 30 days. For, you know, it could be any time, so I don't want to put a timeline. I've been told September. So we still don't have that information yet. But again, there's still a lot to be figured out here. We know a lot of companies want to talk about basically setting up the wind to, you know, to power the electrolysis to sell it out. Some are talking about just setting up the sound to the grid. That's not a, certainly not a defined uh, prospect at this time because there's how much can we actually take in here that is called a wind penetration study i believe it's being done by rise that i might have that wrong we're still waiting on that so look there's still a lot of work left to do hydro has a lot of work left to do and everybody all hands are, are working on it but that's still a, a huge component of this uh hopefully in a short form answer have we made a decision about leasing or selling crown land when we understand what land is being put up that's a decision yet to be made, uh, lease versus uh, grant. What I would say, and the biggest concern for most people, is giving away crown land and not getting back what you're supposed to get. Okay. I think that's short form. That is. That's a good one. Um, there's also lots of conversations about, you know, there's the national conversation about we missed an opportunity with LNG, with liquefied natural gas. There's some pipeline proposals in play here. What is going on with gas? I mean, the only LNG offloading is going to be t taking place in Kitimat, BC. So it's not like we have access here. But gas is gas is gas, and you can actually liquefy offshore. Has there been any advancement of any of the gas-related conversations? Because that's one of the big transition fuels as well. Absolutely. It's a very much an ongoing conversation. Certainly one I think that's more active now than it was before. It seemed like it was put to the side. But the reality is that we have companies that are interested. We have jurisdictions that are interested. 
And we have operators, owners of the resource that are actually interested. Uh, we're hopefully going to be putting forward a royalty uh, scheme very soon. We've actually done that work internally. And what would the royalty regime for this type of resource look like? That'll be out there soon. So without getting into it too much, there's still interest. It's, it's a daily conversation. We know, And we know, look, there's concerns there, like how long is it going to take to move forward? But that doesn't mean we can let this go. I still think there's an opportunity there. I don't think the opportunity is lost. When would you think that, what's the timeline for green light or release from environmental proposals or assessments, or do we have anything like that set in stone? Because before long, the Germans, if they say they're going to offer a sustainable, viable market for the product, they're going to want delivery of said product. So do we have a deadline for final approvals, uh, yeas or nays? We don't. And again, just putting it out there to everybody, this project to me is the same as a mining project, the same as any type of resource project. I'm there to promote development. I'm there to promote the industry. But I don't cross paths with the environmental side lest there be some kind of conflict there. So I can't tell you what it is. I'd like to see, obviously, from an industry perspective, you want to see it as quick and streamlined as possible. Uh, but that's outside mine, and I, I try my best not to interfere with that. So I, again, that, that's the same thing with mining when we had Valentine going through that. Same thing with Beta Nord when that was going through that. You didn't see me calling bureaucrats in that department saying, get a move on. It's inappropriate. So all I can say is we want okay. to see it as quickly as possible, but at the same time, we know that there's time needed. And, of course, I mean, they sort of coexist. When you're answering to industry, they would obviously have timeline discussions. So, and I mean, I understand the division between different uh, ministers and their portfolios. Well, they, every industry wants it today. They want it today. Do. They want it right now. Like no stopping. And, and again, I, I'd like to help these industries as much as I can, but there's a, a reality here that they're not going to get what they want uh, exactly, and I think they, and they recognize that as well. I appreciate you making time. You've had the last um, word, Minister. If I could just put one thing in, though. A lot of conversation, that is good. People are skeptical. That is fine as well. But there's a hell of a difference between Muskrat Falls and the development of a hydrogen industry here, and that's hopefully a conversation we can have very soon. Anybody making those comparisons, you really need to have a deeper look into what's going on here. Thanks for the time this morning. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Minister Andrew Parsons, Industry Energy Technology, the home heat rebate number, once again, for whoever called Founts, one 1339 That's 1-877-745-1339. right, good show. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, Fonz King, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.